Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Monday, August 7th. We are here live. It's a free-for-all right now. We've got about 30 minutes, and then I'm going to have a guest on. So jump in with your questions. I don't have a whole lot to open today. So line them up. Phone lines are open, 855 855- 9503835 is the number to join us. Uh, coming up in about 30 minutes, I'm going to be joined by Joe Rakovats. Joe is the well, I'll I'll announce Joe when uh when he gets here in a little bit. But uh what we're doing uh is inviting all of the other speakers from the NASTIC conference to join us here on the air. I believe Joe has been a speaker there for like eleven years now. Uh so Joe will be joining us today. We'll talk about the NASTIC conference. We'll probably also talk a lot about what's going on uh, in California. Uh, Everything from AB5 to CARB. It's kind of Joe's specialty. Works for the uh, Western States Trucking Association. So line up the calls. We'll hear from Joe here in about 30 minutes. And then after the interview, we can go back to live calls. It is a free for all today. So I'll stay here as long as you've got questions. Uh, It's official. It looks like yellow filed for bankruptcy um, sometime last night. So it will proceed as a bankruptcy now and we'll see what happens with all of that. There's a lot to work out. Um, I tried looking at their financial structure and it's a little confusing. I think their real estate's held by a different company They have a brokerage that, from what I gather, does fairly well. So this is going to be a long, complicated bankruptcy. I certainly hope um, if there's any money left, it goes back to the taxpayers, but I kind of doubt it. Bankruptcies, especially this big, can get really complicated. Uh, They will be fighting this for a long time as far as who... So basically what has to happen in a bankruptcy is the bankruptcy court starts to liquidate assets. They start selling things that have a value and then they pay off creditors and they have to pay off creditors in a specific order. But that order can get very complicated in a large bankruptcy like this. So we'll wait to see what happens. It'd be nice to see the taxpayers get some of that money back if there's anything left. I I have no idea. All right. Did I have anything else? I think I'll get to the call since we only have a half hour. Let's get started in Oregon today. Stephen, welcome to the program. Good morning, Kevin. Uh, This masked character, M-A-C, now I don't want to get him confused with Matt. Uh, This masked character that uh, I've heard on the uh, spaces who on Thursday is totally against. So we need need some federal laws against this guy from being allowed to call in and talk like he does. he, he calls and complains about the double brokering, but then he participates in it and then doesn't even complain. You know, he doesn't go to the right sources to, to, rot, to tell about it. Uh, he just, because it's $4 a mile, he's okay with it all of a sudden. But then him and I got on a discussion. About, he's trying to say, because I'm a lease operator, I lease on to a carrier. I don't run under my own authority that I'm not a business owner. Uh, because I'm leased on to a carrier. So he's trying to say I act like an employee and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, I filed a federal uh, a business tax return. I have no problem if you want to talk numbers. Let's compare, because I also told them. My so only, let's, let, let's do this. Yeah, 56. So, 
Yeah, let's do this. So one of the things I don't like to do is talk about other people if they're not here. So if Mac wants to join, although I probably wouldn't even recommend that. And before we go on to the topic that we will talk about, <laughs> I'll kind of, Mac and I go back a long ways. When the first, remember when the, the whole idea of going to DC with the trucks, I think it might've been around 17, maybe over the ELD yeah. issue. It was a big deal. It was happening all the time. They had their event each year. And I, I was highly critical of that. I still would be. I think it's a bad idea. I think the way it was handled was all wrong. Um, that was when Mac and I first started butting heads. And I, I will say one thing about Mac. He's passionate about what he talks about. I have not found in the past that he resorts to any kind of personal attacks. He can debate. Man, will he will. He's like a pit bull when he gets his teeth into something. But for the most part, he it never got personal between him and I. And after a while, I realized I don't want to do this anymore. There, there are some people that I, I don't want to debate with, not because I don't I can't or whatever. Just at some point you realize we're not getting anywhere with this. So and over time, him and I have kind of mellowed out. We'll still go at it once in a while. But for the most part, he has his opinions. I have mine. Um, it's not that big of a deal. So, like I said, I, I would rather not turn this into a big debate either way. Um, but I will talk about that issue just separate from any person, because I have heard this so many times over the years. If you're leased to a carrier, you're just a glorified employee. Uh, that's just not true. Are there some cases where it might be true? Of course. There, there are lots of people that get into this business and don't really run it as a business, but it really doesn't have anything to do with whether you're leased to a carrier or not. So one of the examples I would give um, my own operation, I had had my own authority for a while. I'd gone back and forth. Um, there was a time where I had my own authority and had trucks leased to carriers. And then I gave up my authority and stayed primarily leased to FedEx. Now, I don't know how you could not call that a business. I owned the trucks. I hired the drivers. I didn't drive myself at all. I generated revenue with other people driving my trucks. And at the end, I sold the entire contract for a pretty darn nice profit. So how could that not be a business? Well, and I would love for him to come on and explain to me that as well, because he can't tell me why, how I'm acting as an employee. You're, and you're I, I invited him onto your show. Yeah. And, and if, and we, and could I invited do that. him onto your show yeah. to compare we, our, we, we could do that. But I, 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 I'll show him my business tax return. Right. Uh, yeah. We could do that. I just don't like to talk about people and, you know, beat on them when they're not here to defend themselves. So if we want to do that, Maybe we do it yeah. in a space or whatever. That'd be fine. But I, I, my opinion on this is pretty clear. I also know um, people at FedEx that have multi, multi million dollar businesses and they are all of their trucks are leased to FedEx. So I don't know how you could not call that a business. Some guys that generate and I'm not talking about millions in gross revenue, I'm talking about millions in profit. There are guys over there with big yeah, yeah. fleets and there are there are other carriers as well that allow uh, owner operators to become small fleet owners, but stay leased to them. There, there are lots of that going on. So to say that's not a business just doesn't make any sense at all. 
and even one truck, one driver, it, it's a business. You're, you're, it, and it's not that they're just trying to pay you to get around the, the laws. I, I, I get to buy my truck, spec my truck, operate the truck the way I want. Um, could there be some controls? Sure. And in, in a lot of operations, there's a ton of control. I, my trucks had to be painted white. They had to have all the proper logos on them that FedEx wanted. Myself and all my drivers had to wear uniforms. I get that. But I have, I've had other businesses in my life where you deal with the demands of the customer. And that's what this is. I, I lease my truck to a customer and that customer, we can negotiate what kinds of things they want. That doesn't make it not a business, though. I get compensated very, and that's where he, because I only get paid 50, I own 56% of the line haul and the company keeps 44. Well, that's too much. They're taking too much. You need to go check uh, your contract and make sure that's because that, that's wait, more double the net. Wait, but, I, hold on, because I don't like that phrase. This is the same thing talking about brokers. Who gets to decide too much? I do. It's my business. That's my not point. you, not anybody else. If I, I, I get to decide. If I sign, yeah, go ahead. If I signed a contract with, if I signed a contract where I agreed for them to keep eighty percent, and I only want twenty because I'm a hobbyist at this. That's between me and the business owner, not not anybody well, else. Well, let's think about uh, this. It, in in FedEx's case, they FedEx couldn't possibly pay a percentage of anything. They have to pay line haul miles. So so what? What? How do, I have no idea how much revenue was generated by all the packages that I moved around for FedEx this week. It's impossible to know. They get moved from trailer to trailer. We yeah. drop trailers, pick up other trailers. It's impossible to know. But I guarantee you, I generated a ton of revenue for FedEx. Packages pay a lot. I could care less. All I care about is how much I got paid and I agreed to that and signed a contract. Yeah, and I have no problem with them keeping 44%. And, and so I call it, I pay them 44% for their services, and I get compensated Correct. pretty well with my 56%. Well, he's like, you don't pay for the service. They take it from me. I'm like, no, I pay, that, it, I it, pay them. That's, that, my, that's just semantics. My, it doesn't matter how we say it. That's just semantics. Those are just yeah. words. I've always looked at it that way, too, and I try to get owner-operators to look at that. You are paying that carrier for the part of the, the job that they did. They went out and sold the contract. That's the big one. They had to go out and pound on doors and say, we want to move your freight. They had to sell it. You don't have to do that, that you're paying them for that. They manage, they collect the, the money, they, they have the insurance in place. They do a lot for their part, and you are paying them to do those things for you rather than go get your own authority and do it yourself. Now, what about people who use a broker and a dispatch service? I know lots of owner operators with their authority that pay a broker to go to do the same thing, sell the freight, that bill the freight, that kind of stuff. Then they also, on top of that, pay a dispatch service to go find them freight and keep them organized. How is that any different? Yeah. And then they uh, might I be paying another service to do their fuel tax reporting. And they probably and they're paying somebody to belong to a drug consortium. So they it it's there's a lot of things that have to happen to move freight down the road. 
And if you have your own authority yeah. and you choose to do all of them yourself, fantastic. If you lease to a carrier and let them do it, that's fine too. If you use a broker and a dispatch service and you let them do some of it and you pay them, they're all just different business models. None of them are right or wrong. I have my opinion about some. I think it's um, kind of crazy to go get your own authority and then pay a bunch of little companies to do all this other stuff. And how is that different from yep. leasing to one company and paying them to do all this stuff? It's not. It's the same thing. And here's yep. here's another deal. Hey, I promise you, I can go find trucking companies right now that I could go lease to that would only take 10%. They basically just yep. let me rent their authority from them, and I do everything else. I go find all my loads. I do my own fuel tax. I have my own fuel card. I give them 10%. I can find a dozen or more of those companies today that you wouldn't make anywhere near what you're making, giving up 40 some percent. So uh, this is just math. I did it. I did it back in the mid 2000s. I had my own authority, but I didn't have my own trailer. So I had my own authority and I would use a trucking company out of Maine and they would rent me a trailer and they would broker me freight right. uh, that they have in their own system. But I was still running under my own authority. It, but they're uh, using their trailers. I know people who have their own authority and primarily work for one broker and one broker only. Yeah, yeah. I, I had the guy you know, on the one show other topic that, I just that um, to... he, he ended up becoming the car small carrier of the year for C.H. Robinson. The whole year he only ran for C.H. Oh, wow. Robinson. He had his own authority. He was brand new. It was like his second year in business. He called me and he was struggling and I, I gave him the idea. I said, why don't you find three to five good brokers, build a relationship, stop chasing all this freight on the load board. And he called me back. Like, actually, he didn't call me. C.H. Robinson called me and invited me to speak at their annual awards ceremony. And it was because of this guy. He told them the story of why oh, wow. he was doing this. So then the owner operator called me and it. he took, that my lesson one step further instead of three to five good brokers he looked at ch robinson he said they have freight everywhere i go why don't i just work with them and he built a relationship with two or three agents in ch robinson's system and he had an awesome year nice you're done another topic just before i get off uh, that driver with the 2016 freightliner talking about these uh, maintenance costs on these new trucks yeah. I've got a 2018 Cascadia, 2018 Cascadia. My wife and I have put every single mile on this truck and we've got 915,000 miles on it. With that, I've put on two sets of brake pads. The rotors are still original. The calipers are still original. The one box is still original. My clutch is original. I've got maybe six grease fittings on the truck total. Right. So my maintenance cost I've replaced, I've replaced the water pump once, I've replaced the alternator once, the starter once, and the radiator once. Everything else is original on this truck, so at 915,000 miles. So if that guy wants to go talk about maintenance costs on these new trucks, this thing is, has been yeah. extremely well to us on maintenance. It, it, it really is now that we've figured out maintenance. You know, one of the other things that happened during that decade plus where we were avoiding emission trucks at all costs, 
lots of other things improved, manufacturing processes, materials, and we weren't really paying attention. And all of a sudden we started really focusing on these newer trucks. And the same thing is happening with these car, with trucks that happened with cars. We used to, if you grew up my age and you owned a car and you worked on it yourself, you were working on it constantly. Starters, alternators, belts, hose, you just worked on them. Spark plugs, points, yep. condensers. There was just a lot of work. Fuel filters you are always replacing. You don't do that anymore. You basically just drive a car and once in a while maybe do something to it. Trucks are like that now. And once we realized, hey, if we figure out the emissions, these trucks really, they go a long way between things breaking or needing replacement. But there's something else that occurred in the last couple of years the cost of everything went up. So when we look at cost per mile on these trucks for maintenance, it seems high. We're, we're basically double where we were 10 years ago on cost per mile for maintenance. On any truck though, the older trucks, if you still have them, are also costing that much now. It, it's not that they're breaking down more. It's the cost of repairing everything has gone up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know, man. We're we're extremely. This truck's been really good. Our oil sample at nine hundred fifteen thousand. Our oil samples are still extremely clean. And back in January, I lost all oil pressure in the engine due to a part failure. Uh, all oil pressure. The shops thought I would have lost my engine. So, you know, the the oil sample is still clean. Excellent. Uh, hey, Stephen, so, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna yeah. cut you loose. I re just remembered I have a uh, guest at the half hour, which is unusual for me. So. Want to knock out a couple more calls before we get to it, Paul? Welcome. Howdy. Um, you know, you had a caller on Friday that's looking for a truck for a fuel tanker, tow, tow fuel tanker. Yeah. Uh, although they are sleeper cabs, they are spec very well as the X Ploger trucks. They might be a little yeah. bit heavy. I don't know. That's but. that's the biggest and, issue with with you know, hauling a tanker is that it pays by the payload. So you want to save every pound you can. So having the sleeper, yeah. it just, it doesn't make sense. We do get slightly better aerodynamics with the sleeper. We could get a little better fuel economy, but it's not worth the trade-off when you lose that much payload. Yeah. He, he could, another place he could look is X loves and flying J you know, fuel tankers because they're always selling this. You know, it that used to be a very perfectly for the job. Used to be a very, very common thing before. Who was it? Was it White that brought out the first integral sleeper? It might have been White Volvo. I'm trying to remember now. I don't know. But prior to integral sleepers, everything. it was very, very common for a new sleeper truck to go to an over-the-road fleet. They'd put their million miles. Well, they'd put four or five hundred thousand miles on it would go to the secondary market, an owner-operator might pick it up and put another four or 500,000 on it. And then when it went to sell again, it was very, very likely they would just pull the sleeper off of it and close up that little hole on the back and make it a day cab because day cabs hold their value better than sleepers do because there's not enough of them usually. And that happens even more now. Day cabs hold their value even better because it, if you wanted to turn one of these things into a day cab, it would cost you a fortune. 
you'd have to be cutting the sleeper yep. off. And sleepers used to just bolt on and have a little hole that you crawled through to get back there. And they were really easy to take off and just put a panel where that hole was. Yep. So, and uh, that that previous caller, I don't know what his revenue is, but if the carrier he's leased to, maybe he, he's running at $5 a mile. 56% oh, of that is $2.80. He, so he does extremely, maybe he's running at $8 a mile. He, I don't know. So, he, he does yeah. extremely well. Yeah. So to say it's not a business is just like, like I said, I've heard this over and over and over. I I don't know why we want. Now, if we take that next step to a lease purchase, yes, they still have to file a business tax return, but we could certainly argue that it's it's not much of a business. This isn't black and white. This is very, very nuanced. You know, when I had my trucks at FedEx, FedEx maintained a ton of control over my operation. So what? I I don't care. I agree to that. I'm okay with that. That was the deal. I have lots of customers that demand things from me as a business, not even as a trucking company. And the idea is you should try to keep your customers happy. That's how you make money. Well, the, the carrier I'm leased to for over 19 years, they have very little control over me. They right. want the DOT number and the name on the door, and I, I use the e-log that they want me to use, and they supply me a fuel card with a good discount, so I use that. And they yeah. have national accounts for tires, so I use that, and pretty much I do whatever else I want. And and, and, there's- and mostly our, our fleet looks like a jar of jelly beans. Pick a color. They're all of them. Yeah. Like I said, it's nuanced. It's all over the board. Some companies exert very little control. Some companies exert lots of control. But that doesn't change the fact that this is a business. Uh, you know, like I said, we yeah, could argue so. the lease purchase. But even them, uh, it's a business. They they just don't have a lot of control over their own business. And, and we all get to pick and choose how much control we might want to give up, how much money we want to make, but it's a business. Let's go to Texas. Bill, welcome to the program. Hey, I'm going to let, let people how know that. Good, good. Real quick, I want to let people know if you're on hold right now or if you're calling in right now, um, normally if we were going to have a guest, we would turn off the phones, but I can't do that right now. So if you're calling in, we will be going to a guest here in uh, probably after this call. Uh, but you can hold, and then we'll go back to questions after that. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah. Uh, I had my authority, and I saw the writing on the wall when the economy was about ready to tank. And then I leased onto an open debt carrier because that's all I do. And it's like night and day. I don't even look at a load board because most of our freight and most of the brokers, that I, agents that I deal with, don't post stuff on the board. And, and I, I keep 75% of it but the average rate that i'm getting is three dollars and plus a mile so for the people that are saying well you're just a glorified company driver all right so be it but i get to pick and choose my own freight and go where i want and take off when i want yeah the the idea of even using that phrase glorified you know company driver it just doesn't make sense yeah. it, it, it's a business nope. we have lots of risk we get to make lots of our own decisions here's one big decision you get to make if you don't like that lease, you can go sign another one. 
it's your truck. You take it wherever you want. It lease purchase becomes so restrictive in that you don't own the vehicle. You don't get to make decisions about the vehicle. You can't take the vehicle to other places. But I will say that is still a business. They have the same risk. They file the same tax returns. It's a business. They've just given up an awful lot of control of their own business. But so what? That Mm -hmm. we all get to make those decisions. Yep. Yep. That's all I wanted to say. I just wanted to give my consent. All right. Perfect. Thanks for the call. Uh, I can probably then squeeze in another one before our guest. Let's go to Iowa. Robert, welcome. Hey, Kev. Can't you over my numbers? Sure. Let's go over them. Did uh, did you send something right. over for now, me? No, this is 3 July. Yep, I've got them here. Hold on. All right. So we are looking at January to July of 2023. So very, very current. Um, gross revenue per mile, $2.24 a mile. That's all miles. That is still a very, very strong number. Um You know, it's interesting. One of the topics I was going to talk about this morning, um, several trucking companies are are announcing and releasing numbers. We're in earnings season. Lots of articles about what's going on with truck earnings. And I keep seeing this this headline that these trucking companies are complaining that we're still bouncing along the bottom. And when is it going to end? And then a couple predictions said it will end at the end, end of this year. And I thought to myself, I'm not even sure we've found the bottom yet. A lot of people I talk to certainly are nowhere near what I would consider a freight bottom, and you're one of them. And then the idea that it's going to end at the end of this year, why? Why would anybody predict that? What's going to change? I think, if anything, it could be worse at the end of this year. I still think we're looking for a bottom. And when I see numbers like yours, like, what's this freight recession they're talking about? Um, so then we look at your expenses, excellent job of controlling your expenses, your fuels, 43 cents a mile. Uh, Ooh, there's some weird numbers here. I need to go over. I know what you're going to, uh, yeah. What, uh, I know, what's, I know what you're going to hammer. Two, two things that are confusing and I'm wondering if they have anything to do with each other. Your maintenance is only four cents a mile. What's going on with that? Mm-hmm. I just bought it, uh, November of last okay. year. Okay. And then, uh, just haven't had a lot of that's that's a lot of, uh, maintenance yeah. yet. Maintenance is one of those things that can be crazy high for a couple months because we bought a new set of tires or a clutch or something big, and then it's just got to smooth out. Or it can be too low when we're in one of those cycles where we just haven't bought anything big in a while. That's fine then. Um, the other one, what do you put under fees? Why is that number so big? Uh, what's our fees? What do you put in the fees? I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not really sure. <laughs> we, I, it's unusual. Normally fees are things like, you know, ATM fees and bank fees, and it's usually less than a penny oh. a mile, but yours is 22 cents a mile. There's some big numbers going in there. Yeah. Um, it might be the expenses through the company released to like, uh, insurance might be in there, you know, Okay. That if that's the case, that's fine. There, there are, there are some right and wrong ways to do accounting, but we have some leeway. And if you wanted to group things like that, you can, I tell people don't group anything that 
you might be able to change. You know, insurance would be one. I wouldn't want to group insurance with other things because occasionally I might want to go out and try to see if I can get a lower insurance cost. And I would want to be able to see that expense separately. So you might want to just go through that list and see if there's anything you should be breaking out because that's a really big number. Okay. But other than that, your numbers look fantastic. You're you're profiting a dollar twenty four a mile, uh, and you all you must be a team, right? Yes. Yeah, because you've got one hundred and six thousand miles already this year. Um, you're also basically at uh, one hundred and thirty two thousand dollars in profit this year. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, uh, this account has zero deadhead. So yeah, are you one stop to the other? Are you leased to a Carrier? You must be. You said that. Yes. Oh, but sheesh, how do you make $130,000 in six months if you don't own a business? <laughs> <laughs> we uh, really negotiate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, that whole idea that, you know, if you're leased to a carrier, it's not a business. I've heard it for years and years. Um, just doesn't make any sense. Congratulations. You've got an awesome business going here. Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate it, Kevin. All right. We are going perfect timing. Um, We are going to jump over to our guest right now. I see we've got him in there. Uh, We got a couple callers on hold. If you want to call in and hold, you can. Uh, We'll go back to calls and questions after our guest. So let's, uh, without further ado, let's bring our guest in. We are being joined by Joe Rakovats. Joe is the Director of Governmental Affairs at the Western States Trucking Association. Joe's been working uh, for nonprofit trucking associations for seven years, focused primarily on small business advocacy. And Joe is also a former owner operator, knows the business very, very well. So let's welcome him in. Joe, good morning. Good morning. 17 years, by the way, Kevin. Se- what did I say? Well, the nonprofit. Seven. Did I really? I was looking right at the number 17. I don't know how I said seven. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I do that, too. I, uh, I, I get my kids' names mixed up sometimes, you know. <laughs> I, I usually end up calling the kids the dog's name half the time, so. It's oh, a- <laughs> yeah. well, I've got... I've got my daughter's dog here while she's deployed, and I, I know that feeling, too. Yeah, there you go. So um, the reason we're having you on is you're just a, a brilliant guy that knows all kinds of things about the owner-operator world. And it might be because you're also uh, one of the speakers at the NASTIC conference this year. I think that's uh, what we're doing here. We've invited all of the other speakers on. This is my first time at the event, period. Um, certainly the first time speaking there. So I'm pretty excited about doing the keynote, but you've been speaking there now 11 years. Is that right? Uh, this will be my 11th year. Yes. Fantastic. Um, as a, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, yeah, David Owen, it's, it surprised me initially, you know, working for a competing trade association, you generally don't see that sort of uh, thing happen, but it certainly did here. Like I say, it'll be my 11th year, given given a uh, 
breakout session on uh, pretty much you know all issues west coast california uh, pretty specifically yeah. Yeah, which uh, there's always issues to talk about in California. So uh, we'll probably touch on a few of those here, too, because that's um, you're kind of my go to source for that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, it doesn't surprise me knowing, David, um, that he would invite you, even though you may have been at a competing association. David operates like he doesn't have any competition, which I kind of like. It is, uh, you mentioned it's going to be your first time. It is an amazing, uh, when I say an amazing conference, you know, I've been to a lot of different uh, trade conferences, and I actually do consider this to be one of the best. And uh, the venue is just second to none there at the Omni in Nashville and attached to the Country Music uh, Hall of Fame. There's always a private concert uh, on a Friday night. Last year was the Oak Ridge Boys. I mean, there's a lot to do, a lot to learn. I have heard um, from many, many people what a just a top-notch event this is from start to finish. So I, I'm excited about going. I've never really gone in the past because with even when I had my trucks, my operation, I was leased to a carrier. So uh you know, Nastic services, just, I, I just didn't need them, but I've always watched them. I, I, you know, they're kind of like, I almost think of Nastic as like the submerged whale. You know, they're, they're way bigger than most people think. They're not all that visible in the industry, really. You know, I, I do a lot in the industry and they're just kind of off doing their own thing and they don't make a lot of noise. Um, but the more you look at that organization, the more you realize it is really, really well run. Uh, and bigger than most people think. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, every every association has uh, something that takes, you know, brings to the table that uh, is, is one of the real benefits. And in Nastic's case, it is their fuel program, which yeah. they're one of the largest buyers of diesel fuel in the United States. Isn't that insane? What, you know, when... That's how Nastic kind of crossed my radar in the beginning. It was my callers who would call and talk about this fuel car. And this goes way, way back. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. How does this little organization have this amazing fuel car? These are better discounts than I see from some of the biggest carriers in the country, you know, that have fuel cards for their owner operators. I'm like, how did they do this? Well, then I, the more I researched them, the more I realized they were bigger than I thought they were. And then when I did... Uh, David and I have only crossed paths a couple times over the last, you know, couple of decades being in the industry. Um, when I realized and, and got to talk to David and, and him and his partner both came from the fuel card business, that was their background. And they just really worked at this and just became a monster in the fuel card industry. Absolutely. I, uh, I have friends who, uh, you know, during their uh, trucking careers actually had the fuel card. And, uh, you know, uh, similar to you, I was always leased to an overlying carrier and never had my own operating authority. And uh, it's kind of funny. I heard a bit of your pre previous caller uh, 
you know, I, I've, I've, I too, like you, have always heard that uh, if you're leased to a carrier, you're not really uh, <laughs> a, a business, right? <laughs> right. And, you know, I was, I was doing a quarter million dollars a year 20 years ago, leased uh, to a, a motor uh, carrier. Exactly. You know, <laughs> you know when, when, I'm, when I'm paying those taxes and I'm filing employment, you know, tax records, it certainly feels like a business to me. So whatever anybody else might think about that. <laughs> yeah. And then it was kind of nice when I... When I was done with my non-business, I was able to sell it to somebody else. How funny. I've never been able to sell yeah. a job to anybody before. Right. But, you know, uh, you know, speaking of the fuel card, though, I had friends who were on it, and that's what really opened my eyes up to, you know, yeah, there's a lot of fuel cards out there that tell you they give you 10, 20, 30 cents a gallon. Right. Right. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to what exists in the system. If you get into a cost plus program and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, essentially what their program is, is the cost plus. I mean, I, my friends would actually show me, uh, you know, what they were effectively paying, say the pump price, uh, a particular Petro, you know, for sake of example was, uh, $4, $4 a gallon, depending on where the market was, you know, I've seen them have discounts of over a dollar a gallon. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Which <laughs> sounds insane. The first time I heard that, I thought, oh, come on, there's just no way. And yet they showed it to me because they get all that pricing and they have the app. And I'm like that, that was what got my attention. And this was a long time ago because the, the, the number one cost we focus on on my show, we've been doing it forever is fuel because it's the biggest cost for an owner operator and it's the one they have the most control over. So we focus on both sides of that equation. One, making sure the truck gets the best fuel economy possible, but two, that we're buying our fuel correctly. And uh, Nastic and their app really helps you do both if you understand, you know, pre-tax cost and post-tax cost, knowing how to buy right. your fuel based on the fuel tax and then getting the discount. There is a savings for one truck of about four to $5,000 a year by using that discount card and buying in the right place. That's a big number. Totally agree with you. And, you know, just as a sidebar to that type of conversation, something that I'm seeing is we... We do uh, IFTA reporting for our California members, and as you're probably aware, most of most of your listeners are if they run California in particular. Get the you know next to Oregon, who has that obnoxious (laughs) uh, ton mile tax, and we can leave that one alone. That lives in a different world by itself. A lot of people may not be aware that California's diesel fuel tax, October 1st, is going to effectively a dollar nine per gallon. That is insane. Right now, it's an 80, it is at 89 cents. And like you no. do, I'm always telling our members to shop that net price. You got a discount, the, the state fuel tax you pay, and then find out if you're, especially, you know, in, in our case, we have a lot of California based carriers and they, you know, they run the 12 Western, maybe border States. And many of them so, are, are actually making a huge error in, in yes. over-purchasing so the state. Let, let's, I try to explain this so people can understand it, but this fuel tax thing it's one of those topics that every time it came up on the air, 
and I would try to explain it to somebody, I would end up feeling like I confused them more than anything else. And I don't know why it's, it's, so I actually went and created a course on, it's an online course people can take so I can show them the numbers. I can show them a fuel tax report. I can show them what happens at the end of the quarter. And the one thing I try to get across to people is we always should be buying net tax. You got to get the tax out of the equation because when you pull up to the pump, it's like buying two totally different things, but trying to compare the price to something else. You can't do it. When you pull up to a pump, you are paying for fuel and you're paying for fuel tax, but that tax is different in every state you run in. So you have to take that out of there. But in general, there are some general statements we can make. In general, states with higher fuel taxes are forced to discount their fuel more to remain competitive or nobody would buy fuel in their state. So many times the states with higher fuel taxes are actually better bargains. Pennsylvania's like 70 some cents. California's 80 something right now, isn't it? 84 or 89, 89, 89 okay. right for this quarter. And, yeah. and going up to a dollar nine, that's, ugh, that's, um, but you have to watch every time you go to buy fuel, California could be in the running. That might, because you're going to get credit for every penny you pay in tax anyway. Right. One of, one of the things I've noticed, and it, in my trucking days, it was, you know, there wasn't the disparity, obviously, in fuel taxes. They were, you know, obviously not similar, but uh, close enough. But you, you still would shop exactly as you describe. I would still shop based on that net price, uh, with one exception, never buy Oregon fuel. There's virtually never a time where that's a good purchase. If you, I, I if won't you, say that. I know you're you were in Oregon. I know, and I won't. I, I won't well, say that because it is still a math issue. It is still Oregon's pump price minus the fuel tax, which is zero. So it's easy to compare Oregon. Right. But there are times where, and you can't change your ton mile tax. You still got to pay that. Um, and then you know we yep. have states that have both. We still have what New Mexico, New York, Kentucky um, that have both a fuel no, tax. Connecticut, Connecticut that have both a fuel tax and a ton yeah. mile tax. Yep. It, in my opinion, since we're talking about this, we should be thinking nationally about moving to a straight ton mile tax like Oregon, because it takes away all the alternative fuel issues. You know, we have electric vehicles it, it, coming it online. We have hydrogen coming yep. online. We have natural gas. We, we've got alternative fuels that aren't being taxed right now for road tax. And how do you, as an industry, how do you say this? Oh, look at the cost of hydrogen electric, which we still don't even know the cost. But once we do, you're not going to be able to point to it and say, look, it's so much better. No, at some point that fuel is going to be taxed. So why don't we just start moving towards a tax that that is just generic across all fuel types? Electronic, uh, you know, the specter of what's coming in trucking is going to, in my opinion, be something where it's electronic tracking. You already have the ELDs and uh, 
you know, the, um, unless you go through an audit, you know, uh, can, can people, uh, underreport their miles? Absolutely. Right. Cause it's a, yeah, uh, it's right. kind of a, uh, honesty based system, but just real quick on the Oregon, the reason I said what I did, Kevin, is that I always used to find that those fuel stops on the Washington side of I-5, oh, right. you got, I mean, they weren't right. big fuel stops. <laughs> They, 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 because they wanted to compete with yes. Oregon, uh, you were, you know, 10, 15 cents more a gallon, but I was getting 30%, you know, 30 cent juice. I was right. actually netting right. better no, you, over purchasing Washington. You are correct. And there, there have been other examples historically around the country. When I ran my trucks, um, I had trucks that only ran Florida and Georgia. I had out and back line haul runs every right. day. And that was one of those examples. Back then, Georgia was like six cents a gallon for fuel tax. And if I remember right, Florida was probably 30, maybe even 40 cents. I can't remember now, but there's a huge disparity. So like you said, right there, the closer you got to the state line, the more the Florida truck stops had to discount their fuel to be competitive and the more... Um, Georgia could crank their price of the fuel up and still manage to sell to people because they didn't understand. And then you also have the company drivers in fleets that don't try to manage this at all. They just tell their driver, just fuel up wherever it, it'll all work out in the wash. And because of that, if you understand that disparity and, and know where that happens at state lines, you can get some real bargains on fuel. Like you said, Washington became a bargain because they had to discount that price so much. Yep. I did the same thing when I ran Miami. It was always, you know, fueling in Florida right before the state line. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me. We have been dealing with this. You you probably know this because you deal with a lot of this stuff. I can never remember. When did we get IFTA? Because I've worked under both systems, so I know it changed since I owned trucks, but I can never remember when. Early 90s? Yeah, boy, that that yeah, it's funny over 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 the decades. I I kind of forget <laughs> when because you, know, yeah, uh, you know I can still remember having the bingo cards. You know, right. I, I got pictures of one of, of my old trucks. You know, seven license plates on the front, fuel decals <laughs> up, up the wazoo on the sides, and and uh, you know it was at a point I believe sometime in the nineties that uh, you know. Uh, an agreement was struck amongst the states and the provinces in Canada, uh, you know, to to have this uniform system. It's, it's interesting. Oregon's in it, but they don't have a tax. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? right. But you, you and I both remember filling out a fuel tax report for every state you operated your trucks in. What a pain that was. Um, and there were states that just didn't give you refunds. If you overbought in a state, too bad. They kept that extra tax. And then when you underbought in another state, and if you overbought in one, you had to underbuy in another, then you had to pay them their extra tax. So the strategy back then, and it made sense, was try to buy enough fuel in each state to cover your miles. Try to stay as close as possible. And that made sense until the day they turned IFTA on. And that should that practice should have ended. And yet I still hear people say this once in a while. Uh, it's it's uh, it's actually, 
you know, you master the system and, you know, I don't know what your experience was, but I can tell you that running primarily Wisconsin in my trucking days to the West coast, uh, I had mastered it enough that every quarter I was always getting a refund. It may not have been much, but I was getting a refund, my IFTA taxes. You know, a lot of times when you're buying fuel right, that's exactly what happens because I mentioned that states with higher fuel taxes have to discount their fuel more. So if you're buying properly, you tend, it's not always true, but you tend to buy more fuel in high tax states, which leads to a refund at the end of the quarter. And I I always try to tell people the refund is not the goal. Because the refund is we're just getting our money back. It's kind of like income taxes. I, I don't really want a refund on my income taxes. But in fuel tax, it just happens because if you're buying properly, it, it's likely to occur. But that's not our goal. Some people hear me say that and think it's the goal to get the refund. No, it's just it's just what happens when you buy your fuel right. You know, I, I always say this, Kevin, you know, a lot of younger people, you know, they don't want to hear about. Uh, you know, for older guys, boy, I remember when diesel was, you know, <laughs> 60, 70, 80 cents a gallon kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. But one of the things I do here is why is diesel, uh, you know, in my, you know, eighties, maybe by the early nineties, cause I forget when the federal law changed some of the deep, uh, cheapest diesel fuel in the country was in California when I was trucking out there. And what a lot of people don't know or remember is that up until that time, there was a prohibition on selling Alaska oil uh, anywhere except outside the United States, which meant that all that oil hit the West Coast markets. And California has a closed system. There are no pipelines from the East and the Gulf Coast to California for refined product. It ends in Phoenix. And so that marketplace was flooded with Alaska oil. And of course, California at that time was the number boy, three producer too wow. of you know yeah. oil in the United States. It still actually has. It was interesting. I was looking at it recently. They they still have one of the highest uh, petroleum reserves in the ground in the in the country. Except they've taken a lot of the Pacific Ocean blocks out. Um, used to be nothing but oil getting pumped off uh, in the Santa Barbara Channel. And, uh, you know, that's diminished over the years from all the uh, environmentalists. Things have certainly changed. Yeah. 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 All right. So, uh, yeah, you know, I like talking about the um, the old days, not just to reminisce. We can learn things from it, you know, and we're in a strange industry because when you look at fuel costs, they are so volatile they, they go from crazy highs up in the 4 and $5 range when things go wrong, and then we drop back down to $2 a gallon again or low twos. Um, and and when, when fuel prices are down where they were for a while, it really is a huge bargain. When you go back and look what they should be based on what we were paying when we talk about those days of 60, 70, 80 cents, um, but that was a long time ago. $2 fuel, low right. twos is still a bargain. You know, if you look at inflation and what it should be, but it, it's just such a volatile cost. And then we can get into the next big issue I always struggle 
describing to people, which is the fuel surcharge and why we have it and why you <laughs> might not see it on a load. And that, you know, I have owner operators screaming, oh my God, the broker must have stole my fuel surcharge. There's none in this load. No, there won't be on a brokered load more than likely. We, we only really need fuel surcharges on contract freight. And it, it's so hard to get people to understand that. But I try to also explain to them even though the fuel surcharge is only stated on a contract rate, it affects every rate we have. The fuel price today affects the line haul rate. The, diff- the reason we don't need a fuel surcharge is because I'm negotiating the load today and I know what my fuel cost is today. So why would I complicate it with the fuel surcharge? I'll just say, here's my rate today. And it is based on the fuel cost. What's interesting about that is, is uh, myself and another friend, we we were at the time leased to a motor carrier and uh, boy, it was back in the, I forget what point in the 90s and we went into management and we actually uh, negotiated a fuel surcharge. At that time, we were on a mileage rate is what we were getting yeah, paid right. on the West Coast. Right. And uh, we did uh, negotiate that kind of that very traditional, as a lot of people know, that uh, nickel, uh, nickel inc- increase for what the heck was it? A penny increase per mile for every nickel increase in yeah. the price of fuel back then with a baseline of one thirty. And what's interesting over the years, and as I, uh, uh, was towards the end of my actual driving career is I'd asked, uh, uh, a salesman with a company, you know, why, haven't you just put this over into the rate as opposed to just uh, continuing to assess a fuel surcharge? And I was told it's because the shippers were comfortable with that. And they always, they always felt they were going to get hosed by put, putting it in the rate as opposed to paying that variable on, uh, it, you know, a fuel surcharge. And I never, I never quite got that. I thought, no, you know, it, but it protects business, both parties. You know, if if we're trying to negotiate a contract rate for a year and on the day we're negotiating it, fuel is $5 a gallon. Well, I'd love as the carrier, I'd love to put that into my rate and know I'm going to get that the whole year because the odds of fuel going up beyond that are probably slim. But the chances of it coming down are excellent. If it comes down, I win. The shipper loses. So the fuel surcharge is really there to protect both parties. Yeah, it uh, it frankly uh, at the time it was a godsend, especially when we were on a, a at that time on a oh, mileage contract. Yeah. You know, we didn't. Well, you know, it, it it was either you got it or you're going to have to find a new home. Yeah, well, what I remember about this, and I can't, you, you're right, it was somewhere around the early '90s, and we were paying like eighty some cents a gallon for fuel. That had been the norm for a long time. And I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but it was the year I almost went out of business because it, several things happened to me all in the same year. And one of them was fuel went to like a dollar forty a gallon over a month. And oh. the fuel surcharge took a long time before we actually started talking about a fuel surcharge and then paying it. So in the beginning, it was just like a pure expense. We just got hammered for a while there. Yeah, it's it's. I still remember the night. I was actually, for whatever reason, had taken a load out to uh, New York City out of Minneapolis, and I was going through uh, Stroudsburg, PA, and I called a buddy of mine. We, you know, early days of cell phones. He says, "My God, 
the, the price out on the signs, $2 a gallon. <laughs> it was just outrageous. I know. <laughs> I know. We were hurting. And, the, and the, the, nobody even yeah. knew what a fuel surcharge was yet. I, you know, like you said, that dollar thirty base or a dollar twenty five base got thrown in there, but we hadn't really needed a fuel surcharge prior to that, and that was it was really rough. And I dropped a couple engines I wasn't expecting. The base plate price in in Ohio went up, and I had eleven trucks. And man, I was I was hurting that year. It was a rough year. Yeah. Oh, it caused other changes in my behavior. I always had. Uh, as, you know, personally, my personal vehicles were, you know, SUVs. I oh, right. remember having a Ford Explorer when gasoline mm-hmm. hit a buck fifty a gallon. I'd never seen that, and I had a Ford Explorer fourteen miles a gallon on a good day. <laughs> and you know, it's been twenty twenty three years. I reverted back to my teenage years. My first cars were, you know, Volkswagen Bugs. You there know, that always go. would get you the girls, right. you know, or everyone else was buying Camaros, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Anyhow, I went back to Farfignugans and I still drive a Volkswagen to this day and, you know, 42, 43 on the highway. And I just, uh, you know, it's, it's always been a focus of mine. You know, uh, I am amazed when I, um, you know, see see people pull up to the pump. My brother has a, one of those Duramax diesels, and oh and, man, uh, oh boy, he just complains when he gets <laughs> to the pump. It's like my cost me a hundred and some dollars, and, and I'm like, yeah, and you're just driving it to the airport and leaving right. it at the airport. You know, right. get yourself something else. Yeah, well, you'll you'll appreciate oh. this. My uh, the only thing my father ever did was drive a truck. He he started driving a milk truck when he was 14, obviously without a license. It's all he ever did. He was an owner operator on and off his whole life. He always wanted a Mercedes diesel. We would go look at. I went and looked at so many of those cars when I was a kid. My dad would just never spend that kind of money. He would go look at him. He he never pulled the trigger, never bought one. Uh, but what he did buy um, was the Volkswagen Rabbit diesel when it came out in 1979 or 80, somewhere around there. Um, that thing got like 52 miles to the gallon on the highway. What an incredible car that was way back then. We were, you know, the crazy thing was I've, I owned a smart car for a little while for a specific reason. And that thing only did like 44. So the fact that we had 52 miles to the gallon, but it's because it was a diesel. And then all of our emission regulations just kind of killed diesel cars in this country. Yeah. Well, <laughs> kind of funny side story to that. I, I needed, um, uh, uh, you know, to buy a new car in 2018. And, uh, that was right at the time, the Volkswagen emission scandal. Oh yeah. And I went into, (laughs) I went into the Volkswagen dealership in Ontario, California and brand spanking new sitting on the showroom floor. Shiny was a nice four door Passat. And of course I've gotten old. I, I, I like a sedan, you know? Yeah. And seven, Seventeen thousand dollars out the door, brand new. Wow! And uh, it was because Volkswagen couldn't sell anything uh, because of the emissions <laughs> right. scandal. And uh, manage, and it's so ironic that uh, 
you know, number one, they don't, they quit building that particular platform, but you look at the Kelly Blue Book on it, and it just blows my mind that it's still worth almost what I paid for it, which that's happened to a lot of cars and, and right. trucks. Everybody knows what happened right. during, during the COVID, you know, half million mile trucks selling for more than they cost brand new. It's just Stupid prices. You know, I, I can remember taking mm-hmm. calls and I've taken calls like this for, you know, the 20 plus years have been on the air. Somebody called me and say, I sold my truck. I traded my truck in. What's going to happen on taxes? And I used to, people used to ask all the time, am I going to have a capital gain? And I'd be like, listen, I've done thousands of tax returns. I've never reported a capital gain on the sale of a truck ever because nobody ever sells one of these trucks for more than what they paid for it. And that's what you would have to have in order to have a capital gain. I would try to explain to him what you're going to pay as a recapture of depreciation. That's different. You could have a a huge loss on this truck. You paid a hundred thousand for it. You sell it for 10,000 and you still owe tax, but that's recapture of depreciation. But in that year, I had to start telling people when you file your tax return, you're going to have recapture of depreciation, just like you always have. You're also going to have a capital gain. First time I've ever seen this because people were selling their trucks for more than what they paid for them. That was unheard of. Yeah. It's interesting what you said, because when I went to work on the association side in 06, I had my 97 uh, Pete that I sold, and I still remember. I sold it for $23,000 with 1.3 million miles on it. Uh, but the year before, I just bought a brand new uh, uh, utility reefer, right. 53-footer, you know, stainless, stainless, you know, all nice. But anyhow, um, you know, I, I used what I've always referred to as trucker crack. And when I call it trucker crack, it's called accelerated depreciation. Exactly. You know? Right. You, you get hooked on that and it's really tough to get off of it because yep. you can destroy yourself, uh, tax wise. And very, very few people talk about that. It, I had to go through exactly what you talked about. I had taken accelerated. I totally expensed out that trailer uh, in 05 on my taxes. And I went through that. I ended up with, you know, living in Wisconsin. Um, and then, of course, moving out of state, there was another issue, you know, the exit tax penalty that states will charge you when you leave. You know, they take away some of your depreciate, your, your allowable uh, expenses on your taxes. Some states do. But I ended up with a $50,000 state and federal tax bill that year, you know, um, it, it, it catches up to, to you. that off. Yes. It catches up to you. What yep. used to make me crazy. I would get a call from somebody who wanted to talk to me about my accounting and tax services. They weren't a client. Uh, and we would just go over their operation and it would always come up. I would look through their history and I'd be like, why are you buying a new truck every three years? And the answer almost always was my accountant told me I should. And I'd be like, well, look, Mm -hmm. your accountant has one thing in mind, and that's making you happy with your tax return this year. That's always their goal. They, I, I do a lot of tax returns. I hate telling people you have a big tax bill, but it's just part of being in business. But instead these, these accountants, tax preparers would tell these guys to go buy new trucks. And I'd say, look, 
they're only doing that because it will lower your tax bill for a while. But is having a low tax bill anywhere on the list of why you got into business? If we go back and think about why you started a business, did you ever write down on your goal list, I don't, I want to pay less tax? Because if you did and then you started a business, you're insane because you'll never pay less tax owning a business. You're always going to pay more, but you, you have to understand that that tax preparer has one goal, and that's just to get your tax as low as possible. I'm trying to help you have a goal of running a more profitable business. And if that's the case, you keep trucks to a million plus, take good care of them, spec them right, maintain them. That's how you make more money in this business. But now I would get them right at that point where they were just, they were, it, it had finally caught up to them. You can do this a couple of times, then it catches up to you and you are screwed now because now you still have an expensive truck and your tax bill is now going through the roof and there's nothing you can do to change it. That's exactly right. You end up making big truck payments without, you know, <laughs> that the IRS considers to be ordinary income. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, at the ripe old age of being in my mid sixties now, I will say this. I mean, I paid a lot in taxes. I always knew I used to have guys rib me all the time. Well, I paid nothing. I paid nothing. But, well, you go back, you know, before the advent of computers, I saw the guys reaching across the fuel counter and grabbing, yeah, grabbing paper receipts, you know, and they would fill them all out and right. zero everything out in Guess what they bitch about now? Geez, Joe, I'm not getting nothing in Social Security. I'm like, yeah, because you cheated the system. So I love this because <laughs> this was a big topic for me, too. As soon as somebody said, well, I have the best account ever. I don't pay any tax. We'll stop there because I don't care who your accountant is. All of the rules are written. I've read them. I know there's a lot of it, but I've read the tax code. I, I have to. I understand the tax code. You don't have a genius tax preparer. There are no real loopholes. Everything's written. I mean, anybody who takes the time to study taxes should understand how to keep somebody's tax low. But here's the thing I will tell people. There's only two ways to pay zero. Either don't make any profit or cheat. Those are the only two ways. And the not making any profit just is not on my radar anywhere. I want to make as much profit as I possibly can. And then you're going to pay tax. You just have to realize that. That used to make me crazy. Oh, I have the best accountant ever. No, you don't. He doesn't know anything more than any of the rest of us doing tax returns. Anybody who wants to go read the tax code can figure it out. Yes, it's complicated. Yes, it's the IRS. But it, it's there, there are no secrets. It's all written. Yeah, it it, I've, it it's so funny. You, you know, we're even talking like this. I used the same tax lady uh, for twenty years, and uh, looking back, I'm like, wow, what a mistake it was. Uh, because uh, exactly what you said, the objective was, well, let's get your tax bill as low as it can. Yet, <laughs> you know, would burn up that depreciation, and yet. It is something you're saying. I always made money. I mean, I had some lean years. Don't get me wrong. Right, right. But I always made really good money. I mean, there was a reason I left a Teamsters job and exactly and bought my own truck. Yeah, and it was because I made a lot more money, and along with that, did go, um, you know, paying a pretty good tax bill. 
And, uh, yep. you know, it's just, it, you know, it was just, uh, you know, I was never going to, I was always fearful because I owned other assets, a home, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. 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 And I wasn't going to play these, these games. I saw others playing because if I went through an IRS audit, I'd have, you know, lost everything. Yeah. And, uh, you do read, yeah. you do read, uh, where you see that happening to people, you know, the, to, to think uh, that the IRS doesn't, they, they have profiles. My wife uh, worked at H&R Block uh, at the headquarters building in Kansas City. Well, and I learned a lot about the profiles they set up for determining audits. Yeah, and unfortunately, they go after the low end a lot because it's easy. It's easy to find an owner-operator cheating. It's not hard at all. The way these guys did it was so ridiculous. It, it would have taken a, a junior IRS agent about 15 minutes to figure out what they were cheating on, whereas the bigger a business gets, the more sophisticated its tax strategies become and the harder it is to to find them doing something wrong. So the IRS is basically, they just go after the low-hanging fruit, which are small businesses that don't have, you know, accounting firms and, and you know, high-priced accountants figuring this stuff out. So you know what else this whole depreciation thing reminds me of? Um, a lot of these new bank accounts now, these these internet bank accounts like uh, Chime, and there, there's a bunch of them out there, and they make a big deal about the fact that you can now get your direct deposit two days early. Well, so what? It only helps you one time. What do people not understand about this? Why does this sound like such a great thing? You Okay, you normally get paid on Friday. Well, this week you want to get paid on Wednesday and you can because of whatever you can get your direct deposit early. But now what happens now? You have to wait till next Wednesday again. Well, guess what? That's the same seven days you used to wait before. So how did this help? Well, I, I will tell you that I, I do know some people that use those, uh, what I, I, you know, I don't even consider them banks myself, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's people out there listening who, who do, but, uh, I do know a few people that utilize those types of uh, financial institutions, and I'll tell you, I know the reason why they use them. It's because they got an IRS tax lien against them that's pretty significant, <laughs> and they're trying to move money around quickly before the IRS grabs it. Got it. So <laughs> that, now that makes sense, but they the commercials always make a big deal about this early pay. And I, and I just wonder, does anybody think this through that? I, I don't know. They make a benefit out of it because I guess it works. But if anybody would stop to think about it, there's no benefit there. You get paid two days early one time and then then what? So what? Yeah. Oh, and I'm sure there's a little fee kind of like factoring. Oh, of course. Fa right. Factoring some that may have been factored already. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Joe, you and I could uh, reminisce about all this owner operator stuff all day long. Um, let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about the conference. Um, like I said, I've never been there. Um, you've been a speaker for 11 years now. Where, didn't you get some award from Nastic? Yeah, in um, yeah, it was two thousand. Yeah, two thousand fourteen, fifteen. Nastic always uh, uh, picks uh, their transportation person of the year, and uh, you know I was at the conference and you know the the dinner and 
and they shocked me. And, uh, you know, usually I'm not, sh- you know, short on, on words. Yeah, and I was right. so shocked, you know, you, you, you know, they announced that they were bestowing that honor on me. And, uh, I could still remember getting up there on the podium and I, that's something I still regret to this day. I'm like, I came across like a moron, I'm sure, because <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I wasn't, wasn't prepared, but yeah, they, yeah, they, 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 they you know, gave me, gave me that honor. That's a big deal. Congratulations for that. That's a, that's a big deal. So I, again, I'm, I'm looking forward to this event and I'm encouraging, uh, I actually, uh, I'm trying to create almost a coup in the background here. I, I'm trying to get our tribe to kind of take over this event since it'll be our first year there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think last year they had uh, boy, 700 attendees, wow. something like that. Wow. And it just grows every year. And, um, you know, the, there's a lot of different, uh, uh, breakout sessions that, that they have. And of course, mine, mine is, uh, focused on West coast issues. And, um, you know, as much as people generally do hate, uh, California for a lot of, uh, valid reasons, um, you know, the fact of the matter is a lot of people still truck out there. They don't really have a choice just because of the, the size of the economy. Uh, you know, most of the nation's fresh produce comes out of there, you know, the ports, I could go on and on. Right. But, um, there, there are issues as you well know, and your listeners are aware of that have migrated out of California and will, uh, affect trucking nationally if they're not defeated. And, uh, you know, my, my session will focus, uh, Kevin on both, uh, the coming, uh, carb rules, you know, there is litigation, you know, AB five, there is something, anybody who runs California, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just, I, I was just going to say that we should probably just start talking about those topics now, cause that's a big part of what's going on. I kind of have a funny story about AB5 happened last week. I've been on top of AB5 right from the beginning. I've been against it right from the beginning. Horrible idea. Then they started giving out all their exemptions and and what a mess the whole thing is. You you know the whole history. I've talked about it from day one. Um, I've really tried to stay on top of it the best I can. Uh, It's a fairly complicated issue. It's, you know, made it to the Supreme Court, wasn't heard. So there's always a lot going on. And in the last couple of months, I've kind of taken a hiatus from being a news junkie. It was really starting to stress me out a lot. You know, I, I always use the excuse, well, I read all this news and I watch politics because I have to, you know, I have to be informed. I've got to let uh, my listeners know what's going on. But I, I got to the point where it's really affecting me stress-wise because the news sucks lately, you know? I mean, none of it's good. So most of it's just absolutely awful things I never thought I would see. So I took a little break. I, I tried to stay on top of the big issues, but for the most part, I, I backed way off reading and watching a lot of news. So last week I'm doing a Twitter space and we were all over the board and we talked about AB5 some. And then towards the end, I had a, 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 somebody came in and asked me the question. They said, can you explain AB5? And 
you know, when you do this as long as I have, you kind of notice things. And the way he asked the question, I thought, this isn't just a question. I I almost felt like I was being set up. I could kind of tell. So I thought, Mm -hmm. I'll explain. So I explained (laughs) AB5 the way I always do. And I got done and I said, so does that help? And he immediately jumped on it. Yeah, it helps, except the video or the article I just posted proves you're completely wrong. (laughs) <laughs> like, oh boy, here we go. All right. I said, so, so what, what is, what, how am I wrong? And he said, well, read the article. And I said, well, I, I don't have time right this minute. Maybe you could just summarize it for me and tell me how I'm wrong. Well, trucking got an exemption. And I said, no, they didn't. Yes, they did. Trucking got an exemption. And I, I went at him. I'm like, look, I, I, I've spoken with some of the attorneys that, that handle this case, that are working on this case. I've followed this case for years. I I, I don't, I'm not wrong. And I mean, I pushed back hard. And then I got off that, the air and I thought, what if something changed? I haven't been watching the news. This could have changed. I thought maybe I should have, you know, toned that answer down a little bit because I said, I'm a hundred percent sure I'm right. And so I got off the air and I went to look at his article and Sure enough, the article says trucking has an exemption. And it was just like a week or so ago, the article came out, I thought, because it had a July date on it. (laughs) So I actually Mm -hmm. apologized. I actually wrote a post and I said, look, I apologize. I I haven't been keeping up with this for a month or two and something must have changed. And then within 30 seconds, somebody said, did you bother looking at the date on the article? And I hadn't. It was from 2020. So then I had to mm-hmm. go back and retract my apology. There is an exemption within, and it's actually a different thing. You know, everybody just use, euphemistically calls it AB5 because that's when it started out. There was a cleanup bill. I forget the number that superseded it. But there is an exemption in there for trucking, and it's being highlighted in the CTA lawsuit. And the part that's interesting is uh, we litigated on that exemption that's in there, and it's specifically for construction trucking only in California. But it means there's no brokers involved, and the contractors have to essentially uh, dispatch the owner-operators. Nobody does that. Multi-billion dollar corporations are not getting involved in that. And our lawyers looked at the whole thing. We we actually went to uh, court on it, and we got an agreement from the state of California that they will never enforce that uh, provision. And, um, you know, that's old legal stuff, uh, but at any rate, it's uh, completely worthless, but it's being utilized in the current litigation as an example of a carve out that's given to all these various industries. We'll we'll see where that goes with the court, uh, because there is going to be a trial on AB5, and I... It's interesting in watching what's happening. Uh, my view on the legal tactics being used right now is that it's going to throw in-state trucking under the bus, but interstate trucking probably has a pretty good legal argument. Oh, good. In, in the ongoing case. Uh, that That's my view. We were the first to litigate on that, and uh, w- what happened, Kevin, is we had already gotten an adverse decision from the federal bench in Sacramento, and we were in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the CTA had filed their competing case, and the federal judge in San Diego put that case on hold pending the outcome of our case. And we had a meeting of the minds 
uh, with the leadership of both associations. And we agreed to drop our case so theirs could proceed. It was essentially giving trucking two bites at the apple. That's what happened. doesn't get a lot of publicity. Um, but at any rate, that's exactly what happened. And as far as the Supreme Court not agreeing to hear the case, I'm not even concerned about that at all. That didn't surprise me. Right. The case has never gone to trial. It's never gone to trial. The Supreme Court doesn't like to hear cases related to, and this was solely related to the injunction that Judge Benitez put in place there in San Diego. And I was in the courtroom when he heard the case, and that guy is so spot on in his analysis oh, good. of what AB5 yeah. is. He yeah. is absolutely spot on. So there's going to be a, a, a trial. Uh, in San Diego, boy, you know, there's a lot of motions been going back and forth. Uh, Teamsters are in there trying to, uh, you know, they're so good at saving jobs, you know, like yellow, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're trying to, <laughs> I got to take my shot, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, but, 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 <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're in there uh, trying to defend this. And, you know, the problem is, is the B prong is impossible not just for traditional motor carriers or lease owner operators to uh, uh, to pass that be prog. You can't contract with somebody inv- engaged in the same business. You know that's almost all you need to know because right. you have to pass all three <laughs> prongs of an ABC. You cannot pass B. But the other thing is, is trucking companies themselves contract with owner operators with their own authority. Guess what? That's not permitted under the B prong. Wait. So it's it's way beyond just an effect. And I've listened to. Uh, wait a minute. I, I want to make sure uh, I, yeah. I heard that right. So a, a carrier, a car- how about a carrier with broker authority? They're still a motor carrier. If they if they are a motor carrier and you see this with some car- a lot of carriers and we won't touch that because it makes them uninsurable. You know, they don't know that. <laughs> but you see a lot of carriers, motor carriers that have broker authority. Now, within the state of California, all the motor carriers broker, right. but there's no state law governing brokerage. So there's no requirement to have anything, no motor care permit, no DOT number, motor. It's not regulated is the point. And so motor carriers broker. Now you're talking and in there is in trust state. Or they're all, are they doing it? In, intrastate. Intrastate. It right. is the largest intrastate market in the United States, bigger yeah. than Texas. Yeah. I didn't realize in term, that. In terms of fleets. That that was all unregulated within California? Yeah, there's no regulation I on had brokers no idea. within the state of California. Al- Al- Alabama, for instance, requires even just brokers within the state to get a license to do that. California has zero requirements. So, you know, uh, it, it's really, you know, interesting for me to watch the developments at this point and how it's legally being argued because, uh, um, you know, federal arguments, interstate commerce, for instance, they're valid for, inter- you know, for interstate motor carriers. Those are not saving arguments for the huge population of in-state fleets. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. We don't deal with the in-state stuff much, so I, I didn't realize some of those things 
Yeah. Let me ask you another question. Uh, this is almost, well, it's not totally off topic, but it's something I've been thinking about. And I don't know if I have a mental block around this or whatever, but whenever I bring this up, um, I, I don't seem to get any really good answers. So if I want to go into business, uh, almost any business, for the most part, I've started many, many businesses without doing anything. Like no local license, no, I mean, you get a tax ID or some of the stuff you absolutely have to have, but no business license, even mm-hmm. though the county I live in probably required it. Uh, well, I remember one of my businesses, I, it was in Orlando and I had a physical location and a tax guy came around one time and he's like, where's your tax license? And I said, I don't know, I don't have one. And he said, well, you have to have one. And I said, well, I don't. And he said, okay, well, you got to go get one then. And I said, all right, where? And he told me, and I went and got one. It's probably the only business license I've ever had. Uh, so I can just start a business and go into business and, you know, file my taxes. And nobody's ever bothered me. I've been doing this for 40 some years. Why is it that once we deregulated the trucking industry, why did the authority part stick? Why do we still have to ask the federal government for permission to be in business? I, I, I don't understand why we still have that process. I understood why it existed prior to deregulation. That was the whole point. The government controlled the rates by controlling the supply, by controlling who had authority and where they had authority. It was heavily regulated right down to the lane. But once that went away, and there is no federal control of rates anymore. Nobody's trying to control the size of the, the number of trucking companies. Why did this whole ugly process of needing authority continue? It's actually, there is a answer for your, for your question. Good. And it is, it is Congress. And, uh, you know, a lot of this falls under uh, the guise of safety, highway safety, and access to the marketplace. Even in 95 with the ICC Termination Act, uh, that is what killed one of the most powerful regulators in the United States. And at that time, it was uh, the Texas Railroad Commission. They totally, just like California did through its PUC, uh, you know, some will still remember Cal-T numbers. California and Texas severely restricted access to their intrastate markets. Congress prohibited that. But they, under the safety exceptions, they still allowed them to regulate entry into the marketplace. Texas and California have almost identical systems in terms of permitting in-state motor carriers. Half the states in the country still require uh, motor carrier authority just to operate within the state. Uh, I can remember when I was in Ohio, um, Ohio had really strict uh lockdowns of who could move intrastate. And if you had some of that authority, it was valuable. Like it was, it was kind of like prior to deregulation nationally, your, your authority was one of your most valuable assets. And for a long time after deregulation, Ohio was still that way. You you just couldn't get authority to move freight intrastate and it kept the rates really high. It's interesting, uh, you know, I do know some uh, people are dead uh, from uh, Ohio PUC, and uh, 
when they uh, were forced out of the business of regulating motor carrier access to the marketplace, uh, they became one of the lead uh, safety agency for Ohio uh, in terms of motor carrier safety oversight. You know, you're. So, yeah. so I, I always hear the safety aspect. Okay, I, I get that, but we have lots and lots of very dangerous industries where, where you could hurt people, and yet you still don't have to ask for the federal government for permission to be in business. I, I, I get it. We can have all kinds of safety regulations, and we do. I still don't understand why they have to be tied to this thing we call authority. And, and it changes everything. If I have authority, I can go directly to a customer or a broker and get freight. If I don't have authority, I can't. That, that just seems odd to me. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but in the end, it's it's Congress of the U.S. Oh, well, setting if, if, these if, things in motion. It was if, if that's the answer, then that makes total sense. It's just politics. There's no good logical or common sense reason yeah. to do this. It's just <laughs> politics. That answer makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only thing they deregulated in 1980, um, you know, I always use uh, kind of an interesting uh example to describe, you know, uh, my generation that, you know, I did start driving a truck in 1977, you know, pre-deregulation. Right. You know, I was in college driving a, driving a beer truck. Imagine that, you know, you who. <laughs> and, and, you know, but I was only allowed at that time to operate within Wisconsin. You had to go from Milwaukee to La Crosse, Eau Claire, you know, et cetera. But if I crossed the Mississippi River Bridge, I became well, unsafe. So there's yeah. my shot at that, you know. Just, you know, <laughs> one of my other favorite topics that people usually disagree with me on is allowing 18-year-old drivers. And, and one of my arguments, I'm actually for it. Um, one of my arguments is how do we think it's okay to allow an 18-year-old to drive all over Texas all he wants, but the minute he crosses the Red River, he somehow becomes unsafe? How is, how does that make any sense? Yeah, I, uh, well, you know, you got cities that straddle borders, you know, so right. St. Louis, yeah. Kansas City, you know, literally in Kansas City, right down the middle of a city street. But you you cross the street, you know, uh, <laughs> and now you're you know, that, that's never. <laughs> yeah, that's never made any sense to me. And I, I understand that it's very, very uh controversial amongst uh, truck drivers. And, you know, one of the things I get a kick out of is when I hear people say, well, Joe, it was different back when we were young. We were so much more mature. And I go, let me describe, let me describe exactly what it was like hauling out of Milwaukee's breweries in the 70s. This was the same at almost all breweries nationally. I'm 18 years old. I'm going into Schlitz, Miller, Paps, Val Blatz had just closed down. That's who I was hauling uh, beer out of. Every last one of the breweries had driver's rooms where we sat sometimes for a day or more waiting. It depends on what type of beer. If you're picking up kegs, you were always screwed. Yeah. But the driver's rooms were full of coolers of every beer (laughs) that that brewery made. You think uh, at 18 years old, I wasn't uh, sitting there while I was sitting there. Point. You know, there's a phrase. We used to go to the brewery to get loaded, and we got loaded. Exactly. And then we uh, got loaded. Yeah. You know, and uh, 
that was the world that existed. So when I hear this phrase, and by the way, it wasn't just me at 18. It was all the truck drivers were, were drinking beer. You know, I was just telling the story the other day. I grew up in a trucking family. My grandfather was an owner-operator. My father, all my brothers, my brother-in-laws, my uncle. I mean, everybody drove a truck. Um, most of my time growing up, my father and most of my brothers worked for union companies. My dad worked for every LTL union company that existed, and it seemed like he was always there when they went out of business, too, because there was a lot of that going on back then. Um, all those yeah. You mentioned all those beer companies that don't exist anymore. There was an awful lot of uh, trucking companies, LTL carriers that don't exist anymore. Um, but this is an absolute true story. I remember this growing up. Uh, out of the Cleveland terminal for Spectre, which is what my, where my dad was working at the time, um, they had a couple really short runs. Uh, uh, Ripley, New York, out of Cleveland was like three and a half hours or something. I mean, it was a pretty short run. It was not uncommon for those guys to take one of those runs. When they got back, then they had to have eight hours off, I guess it was back then. They would go to the bar and spend the entire eight hours at the bar and dispatch would call them at the bar when they were up for their next dispatch again. And they would go back to work. And that was a fairly common thing. So yeah, I don't want to hear about how much more responsible the earlier generations were. You know, it's interesting. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, I was a Schneider transport union driver, you know, 40 years ago when the entire company was the largest truckload union motor carrier in North America. Yeah. And under our union contract, we could not fuel our own trucks. That wasn't our job to fuel the trucks. So all of our uh, uh, fuel stops, you know, Hubbard, Ohio, Green Shingle in Fairview, oh, Pennsylvania. Oh, my God. I remember the Green Shingle. Oh. I it was my dad's oh, great favorite, food back in the day. Favorite truck stop. I was going to the Green Shingle when I was like seven and eight years old, riding with my dad. <laughs> well, here's here's something that was happening. Truck World, Hubbard, Ohio, back back then. Uh, you know, we'd pull up to the pumps. We couldn't fuel. They had uh, it was all full service. You know, check the oil. Blah blah blah. Yeah. We'd go into the bar in there. <laughs> We'd go into the bar, get a cheeseburger, wash it down with a beer, and go back to work. Yeah. Now, you know, I sit and I go, okay, that's how mature we all were. And what's really interesting is when you, you know, try to say we were more mature, I can tell you that the truck fatality rate per hundred million miles, you can look this up, at that time in US history was somewhere between seven and eight fatalities per hundred million miles. We have bounced as low as one, one, one point four in that. We've we've stayed down, you know, still above one. But it was six times the, yeah. the fatality rate that exists today. Well it's no wonder. We were drinking beer at our break and we didn't have front brakes. Right? <laughs> yeah. It was a dangerous job. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I have a vision of hell. Everybody probably has their own vision of hell. I can tell you exactly what my vision of hell is. It is to spend eternity in a cab over Transtar that's a 138-inch wheelbase <laughs> with a 45-foot trailer attached, and everything is on spring ride. And I start on I-80 at the Ohio-Pennsylvania line 
I get to the Delaware water gap and I got to turn around and go back across that bumper. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the air ride seats only came halfway up to your back. And I realize we're kind of sounding, you know, you know, like, I know. You know it's, it's, it's uh, you know, war storying it, we, you know, we've uh, earned it, but it, it, yeah. that's my vision of hell. Yeah, We've earned it. <laughs> I only have a, a, a slight variation to that because I, I grew up in Streetsboro, Ohio exit 13 on the Ohio turnpike back then. So, um, Ohio and East to the East coast was what I did just about every week. So very familiar with that route. The only change is, is mine was a, um, GMC Astro cab over. Uh, oh man! So so spring ride everything, and and it was like driving a fishbowl around. There was so much glass in the winter time. There was no way you could keep that cab warm, and in the summertime, it was worse than mm-hmm. a sauna in there. That's my first truck I bought in '85. Was this, I got a large car, '79 GMC Astro with a. It had it originally an 8V92 in it, and then that blew up, and it got replaced with a 6V92. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my first truck was a, an old roadway, uh, and I had a six V 92 in that, but then when I got the, the Astro, it did have a big cam three fifty in it. So that was powerful back then. Oh. If you, yeah. If you had a big, oh, you had a large, large car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boy. All right. But, Boy, th- th- this is, I'm really enjoying this, Joe. A- anything else we should talk about in California? You know, uh, certainly AB5 something. Yeah. What, what I, else should I, we I, be watching? I did mention, yeah, coming up the end of this year, something anybody who runs West wants to run West is going to have to know is that the, uh, there are going to be additional registration requirements. Uh, number one on power units, uh, starting in the fourth quarter, uh, sometime, you know, late, probably in the fourth quarter, there is going to be a requirement to register your truck with the California Air resources board, regardless of what state you're in and pay a $30 per truck registration fee. Really? And starting in 2000, yes, starting in, uh, and I'll be covering this um, this and more, obviously, at the, the NASTIC uh, conference. But starting in 2000, uh, right now it's uh, scheduled for uh, summer 2024, California is going to require any and all trucks that come to California to be emissions tested. This is what the $30 registration fee is all about. And you're not going to be able to go down to your local dealership very likely and get it done because there are specific testing tools. This will be something probably done by the state lines because then it's automatically uploaded to the CARB website. They are going to do, you know, I still go old school, call it the ECM, uh, ECM downloads related to emissions. So if you got deleted stuff on your truck, forget about it. You get busted. The, uh, you know, stay, stay away. We the other thing is begging people not to yeah. delete these trucks anymore. You know, just uh, there is just no good reason to do this. Don't buy one that's deleted. Don't delete one. It, it's it, there are way too many ways to get caught at this now, and it's just not worth it. And it's not necessary sure. anymore. We really have figured out the emissions on these trucks. We know how to keep them running right. 
Um, it's got a lot better, uh, certainly from, uh, you know, uh, the advent of 2010 and, you know, that first few years was, uh, you know, I just cringe when I hear somebody oh, saying yeah. they're buying a used 2013, you know, but, uh, we, we kind of tell people yeah. that there was the, the dirty decades stay away from Oh four to 14. Those are the years that I'd really rather not mess with. There are a couple trucks, certain models or engines in there we can work with, but I'd rather not. Uh, but after 2014, yeah. almost every engine out there. Now we know how to spec them, right? We know some additives that help quite a bit. We're just not seeing those emission problems when you do things right now. So there, there isn't a need to yeah. do it anymore. And the downsides are just way too big. Yeah. You know, you can read almost every day EPA's uh, U.S. EPA uh, is is doing carbs uh, work nationally. And they are going they have been going after uh, trucking companies, everything. The other thing is, is, is California carb has been installing uh, uh, emissions testing uh, devices at the scales within the state at the main ports of uh, entry into the state. And they will, if uh, it sniffs out uh, your truck, uh, is is uh, being a polluter. And of course, that's by their definition based on model years, et cetera. It will send you a citation. Uh, it'll be a, uh, you know, you got to get this fixed. And no, it's called a notice of claim. So it's become... Uh, even because uh, I I've known this that uh, everybody knows this so, you know a lot of folks just ignored uh, California rules and said I never got bothered I know that's true right and uh, yet that they are they are uh, you know there's always been a joke uh, carbs uh, uh, diesel cops which aren't real cops by the way they have no primary police powers in the state of California that's why there's a you know they always have to get mated with a CHP officer. Um, but at any rate, uh, you know, they're, they're solar powered, you know, the sun goes down, you never see them. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the other rule for those who haul produce, you know, California is uh, mandating, of course, ultimately zero emissions reefers by 2029. But uh, there is a registration requirement coming up beginning December 31st of this year. Same deal again. It's $30 to register. It is going to require the affixing to the uh, reefer unit, uh, you know, uh, specific uh, CARB uh, compliance numbers. Anyhow, uh, these things, I'm certain, are going to get litigated. Um, all, you, all the listeners need to think about is a state like New York thinking they could get away with charging 20 bucks for their hot decal. Right. This is the same thing. Yeah. Except CARB ignored everything. They ignored everything. And I fully expect once their coffers are loaded with money that, um, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, legal attacks on their attempting to make truckers pay for their their compliance uh, crap. It's just crazy how one state can create so many headaches in an industry. Yeah, that's being, uh, you know, everybody goes, well, that's California. That doesn't affect me. Oh, contraire, contraire, (laughs) especially, yeah, contraire. I mean, even, you know, just bouncing around, even AB5, you know, we opposed Julie Sue's nomination to uh, be labor secretary, but uh, 
you know, they, they still want to clamp down on who can be viewed as an independent contractor in the U S and, I, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I can't imagine, honestly, if they were ever able to pass something like this federally, what it could do to our, our economy. You, you talk about the law of unintended consequences kicking in. All we're thinking about, all I ever think about on this is trucking. But this is so much bigger than just trucking. Trucking is, is a huge, it will be a huge impact if it happens. But this is so widespread across so many industries. I can't imagine what might happen. And I don't think anybody can. That's yeah. a bigger problem. I don't think, I don't think we can possibly try to predict all of the consequences of something like that happening. Well, it's, uh, you know, I'm like you, I focus on the trucking side and I, I do try, you know, I mean, privately over cocktails, I'll talk politics, you know, all day long, but it's tough to divorce this issue from, you know, the, uh, showing the dramatic differences between political parties and who their alliances, allegiances are to, and you are absolutely correct. I mean, uh, one of the other things we've been watching real close is uh, the joint employer uh, rule. And by the way, I've, I've heard people go, oh, Joe's with a big motor carrier association. Half of our members are one truck motor carrier. We are a small <laughs> business-focused association. Yes. Yes. You know, and uh, the large motor carriers that are a member of our association, they're only there to uh, keep apprised of what we do. Let let me, can I jump in real quick? I don't mean to interrupt you, but I I love the fact that, and I didn't know this till you just said it, that a very large portion of your members are single truck owner operators. I've tried for years to get more owner operators to join state trucking associations. And, and my point has always been when they start talking, well, they're only for the big carriers or they're for their members. Of course they're for their members. That's what associations are there for. Maybe you should be one of their members. So you have some say, and if enough owner operators would join these organizations, we would have more say. I uh, have always been uh, a, a big believer in uh, being part of an association. And it was very, very simple for me. Uh, I can still remember late 80s, probably 88, I picked up a landline magazine up at the old 76 in Pembroke, New York. And I always have believed that, uh, you know, I feel very strongly about issues, but I knew doggone well that I wasn't, I was too busy running my business. Right. trying to take care of a family, you know, it wasn't going to be, you know, as strongly as I felt about these, these issues, uh, it wasn't going to be, uh, me that was in any position to do anything. Look, you can write all the letters you want. I mean, I don't yeah. discourage people from it, but you will never actually hear me, you know, uh, say, you know, write your Congress member, I, might, you know, right. You know, I really collective, right. collectively. Yeah. It's, I can tell you what happens. It, you go, it, it, it all goes in a circular file. Yes. One of the things that I remember, uh, once when I was in DC is, uh, you know, a member of Congress had met with, met with, and he actually says, said to me, he says, Joe, he says, you know, why should I listen to what you're saying? Because when you 
walk out this door, Inn's going to walk the ATA, truck, all the other competing associations, and they got a different different uh, take on an issue, right? Right. He says, you guys are nothing like agriculture. Agriculture is 100% aligned. Trucking is fractured so yes, much. We are. And he says, that's your problem in trucking. Your problem in trucking is that, you know, basically he would say, you all bicker amongst yourselves. And uh, <laughs> yes, I've never do. forgotten that. Yeah. yeah, we do. <laughs> you know, uh, and I get there's a difference between what a large motor carrier wants and, say, an owner-operator or even a driver. Oh, yeah. See, there, there's my issue that down on the small end of this market, we get very, very confused. Company drivers, employee drivers, and single truck owner-operators, everything about their day looks exactly the same, doesn't it? They drive a truck, they sleep in a truck stop, they get some fuel, they go fight traffic, they pick up some freight, they go deliver freight. Their day looks exactly the same and it couldn't be more different and i don't understand how we try to advocate for drivers and owner operators at the same time when they could be on completely opposite ends of this issue i can give you a grand example of that that many of your listeners are probably aware of and and uh you know, everybody's going to have a different opinion on it. Uh, we actually led the charge on California's meal and rest break issue. And uh, there there was a very significant reason uh, for our involvement. And, of course, in the end, uh, it led to a positive outcome for, from, from our viewpoint. But what I've never understood was how drivers, uh, you know, employee drivers primarily, felt that that was a good thing to let states individually set their hours of service rules. I still don't understand that thinking. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was like, you're not going to get a bonus here. You're not going to get a bonus. The, the money that's in the, they will just reconfigure everything, you know? And, uh, in fact, that's what's really transpired. It just became more of an accounting issue for any motor carrier that, uh, you know, had employee drivers and keep in mind our half of our members have one truck and the majority of the rest are just small fleets, you know, maybe up right. to 20 trucks that, that 97, 98% of the industry. That's what our membership constitutes. Most of the company owners, uh, if they're not still actively driving a truck, they're not far removed from the truck driving career that they had that built what they have today. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely the, the industry is its own animal. And we certainly see a lot of this. Joe, I know, I know we had you booked for an hour and I've gone way past time. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Can we, do you want to take a question or two if we have any? I don't have any right now because we've been talking the whole time. But if I ask, we might have some. Sure. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Let, let's do that. So if you've got a question for Joe, anything about uh, what's going on on the West Coast uh, in trucking, this is the guy to ask. He's been all over this issue for how long now on the West Coast specifically? Uh, specifically 11th year. Ah, excellent. Excellent. So uh, I've been, been with Western States Trucking Association for 11 years this past June. Hey, I, I was just thinking about something else. I, um, I noticed there's a, a new truck show in California. 
I, I don't know how new. I know this is the first time. I think it may have been last year. Um, but I was looking at it this year because I'm going to be on the road right then, and I might be able to squeeze it into my schedule. Do you know much about that one? In, uh, uh, which one are you talking about? There's, there's actually, uh, uh, there's actually. Are you talking about the California Trucking Show in Ontario? Yes, yeah, that's the one. Uh, November first week in November. No, October. Uh, 14th October fourteenth and 15th. And, uh, through fifteenth. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's been a very, very much of a growing show. Um, started out pretty small, and they—it's uh, in the Ontario Convention Center. So if you're trucking and you're out there uh, that weekend, it's a Saturday and Sunday show. Um, we're actually going to have a booth for our drug oh, testing uh, side of the, the business. There, um, we're finally coming back to it after the COVID. Uh, you know, that's uh, the COVID kind of kicked killed a lot of things. I mean, in California, we had the most draconian shutdowns in the nation, you know, (laughs) but yeah, they, they have the entire, entire Ontario uh, convention center. And so if you're, you know, stuck at the truck stops there in Ontario, you know, you're just a short Uber Lyft drive, you know, probably cost you 10, 10 bucks, 15 bucks to get on over there. And it's, uh, you know, free, free entry into it. You know what caught my attention, and you mentioned this, that it's a growing show, which is unusual. Just about every other truck show I know has been shrinking or disappearing for years. Um, So it was interesting to see one that's getting bigger. So we're actually taking off right around October 10th, I believe, in the coach, heading to Tennessee for Nastic. We're just going to take our time and work our way there in the coach. I hate flying anymore, so I can just jump in the coach and keep doing the show and do our thing. And I I looked at it and I thought, you know, if we leave here on the 10th, I could just zip down there, hit that show for the weekend, and then we'll take off from there because I'd rather travel across the south anyway. So uh, maybe we'll see you there. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I won't be at it. Okay. We'll have staff there. I, uh, yeah. I'll but, stop uh, and say hi. You know, it's... Yeah, but uh, like I say, it's just a short hop and a skip and a jump from the truck stops there in Ontario. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, the largest truck show in the country, you know, a lot of people focus on Louisville. uh, You know, you go back just enough years, and it was actually Las Vegas. You know, I used to be a big event that took the entire Las Vegas Convention Center. And... uh, I do know kind of what happened in terms of management of it and how it got kind of uh, used to be down in uh, Irvine. And, right. you know, there was some bouncing around with different uh, takeovers of it. But, uh, you know, the reality of trade shows and for what you do, Kevin, this one probably would be, you know, a decent fit, at least to check it out, you know. That's what we're going to do. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, but trade shows generally, we have kind of backed away from them because there is such a low return on investment for what you have to spend. That's what we say. You know, I used to hit a bunch of shows when I was doing a lot of speaking, and that was fine because I was usually getting paid to be there. But when we tried being vendors at truck shows, what a wake-up call. My God, we would spend a fortune. It would disrupt our company for two or three weeks. Uh, And then you'd look at the end and think, why? 
why do we do this? And at some point it was almost like, and I've talked to other vendors too, it wasn't so much that they wanted to be there. It was more that they were afraid not to be there. You know, it's that impression of it's Louisville. If you're in trucking and you're not there, somebody's going to wonder why. Well, we stopped going. I, I just couldn't justify that kind of cost. There was no return on it whatsoever. And then, like you said, they, they started disappearing. I have a, you know, a couple reasons why I think Vegas disappeared. The, the location was awful, in my opinion, for a truck show. And then their, their unions there, I, oh, what a nightmare trying to be a vendor there. I can remember the first year I had such a tiny little setup for my booth that I had it on a rolling cart, like a rolling luggage cart. I could carry everything I needed for the booth. So I pull into the parking lot, first time I'm at the Las Vegas truck show as a vendor, and I start walking in the front door with my, my uh, little roll around cart and they stop me. And they said, you can't come in this way, you're mm-hmm. a vendor. And I said, and I, I could actually right. see right over the guy's shoulder. I could see my booth. It was right there on the corner. It was like 30 feet away from me. I'm like, my booth's right there. I'm just going to walk right to it. And he says, no, you can't. And I said, why not? He said, you can't bring anything in through this door. You got to go around back. And I'm not exaggerating. By the time I figured out how to get around back in the middle of rush hour in Las Vegas, it was probably two and a half hours before I got to my booth and got my stuff. And I could have had it done in 10 minutes. Yeah. The Mordita, you got you to pay off. Yeah, that, that, that's been one of the other things that we, uh, you know, I mean, I got to remember going into the Dallas show and just hauling out of the Omni our, our display booths and, and uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken anymore. And I was like, <laughs> that was a pain, you know, just to avoid, just to avoid, uh, going around to the shipping dock, you know? <laughs> you, you wouldn't believe the mistake I made one year at the Dallas Truck Show. We had built our signature glider, and, and we were going to display it in the show. And I, we were driving it around the country at the time. I was pulling our show trailer behind it. We were living in it. And um, we get to Dallas, and I'm like, you know, when, when the show's over, we got to get out of here. We had another appointment to make it to. So I said, I'm going to get fuel before we go in. So I had dual 150s, I think, on that truck. I topped that thing off (laughs) and then found out you're not allowed in the building with all that fuel. You have to be almost empty. And I stood out in the parking lot in 110 degree heat in Dallas, giving fuel away just to anybody that would come and siphon it out of my tanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. but uh, no, it's it's uh, you know I I I did love Vegas just because I love the venue. Uh, When I say the venue, I mean Vegas. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, definitely uh, enjoyed that scene. You know, and uh, getting together with folks afterwards. But uh, yeah, you know, it's. the big thing is, is a lot of a lot of organizations, companies are just looking at the return on investment, and the spiraling costs for uh, attending these shows, yeah. and it just is making it not pencil out. It's that simple. No, that that's exactly right. Everybody from the biggest companies, the OEMs, you know, said to Louisville, "Look, it just doesn't make sense for us to come and spend all this money every year when we don't even have anything new every year to show." Right. Well, it, it was 
you know, certainly when the OEMs uh, pulled out of most of the trade shows, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, that was somewhat of a death knell to the, yeah. the midsize shows. Yeah, it uh, really was. It really was. All right, yeah. Joe, I can't believe it. We're, uh, we're at the top of the hour here. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I'm really looking forward to uh, meeting you at the conference this year. Absolutely. I look forward to your keynote address to to the assembled masses. All right. And so and it's, so a, it's a great event. Your, your membership now that I know has got so many owner operators, I'm going to continue to uh, encourage more owner operators to join those associations. We need that. They, uh, you know, whether it's at the national level or especially at the state level, um, you know, associations do have a lot more success at, at the state level, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, in California, well, you know, we, we, we got, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to say it's almost like we got the com- communists in power there, you know. They, you <laughs> they're so anti-business. I know. They're so anti-business. It's... Uh, you just shake your head and wonder, you know, who's going to pay for all the free stuff they want to give away, you know, at the rate they're going. Yeah, except I know, you know who's paying for we, it, you and I. Yeah, except we got a lot of members, and AB5 is part of it. You know, we have members who are relocating out of state. They're I'll jumping bet. the state line, Nevada, Arizona, Idaho, Texas is a big one. Hey, you know, how, but, how, uh, co- how come they're not coming to Oregon? We have a border there, too, you know. <laughs> there, there are a few that have gone yeah. uh, gone north, but you know the luster it, on the, the three West Coast states is really. They're all you the know same. between the, you know frankly yeah yeah, they, yeah between the, the crime and the drug addicts they're letting run the streets it's uh, it's really pathetic it, it it's is not and, uh, not the, what, no. what really bugs me about it is it's just absolutely gorgeous out here. I love the West Coast. I'm living here. I just hate the politics. Um, you know, I alluded to it. I know a lot of people, uh, you know, despise California, but it's primarily on its politics. Is right. the reason for that? It is the most beautiful state in the country, far not. To I bottom. mean, you can go downhill. You can go downhill snow skiing on the same day you go surfing. Yes, and golfing. There's no other state I, I, in the country I, I, that you're going to. Yeah, yep. I know. It, it's, it's just it's, stunning I wouldn't from top wa- to bottom. I wouldn't want to raise kids there. I'm glad I never had that choice in the mid-'80s, and I'm thankful that I did yeah. opt for it and raised our kids in a, in a, in a hobby farm in northern Wisconsin. So they turned out real good. You know, I don't know what would have happened if we'd have tried raising them out in LA. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, great stuff. Looking forward to, uh, to, uh, meeting you and getting to spend some time with you. And, um, if things change or, and I know they will, a lot's going to be happening in, in both AB five and emissions in California. Can we, uh, reach out to you and get you to come back on sometime? Oh, absolutely. Fantastic. We'd love that. All right. Thanks again for today and uh, have a great rest of your day. We'll be talking to you soon. Yeah. Same to you, Kevin, and your listeners. All right. Take care. All right. We are going to open it up for calls. It is a free for all. I don't have any calls on the line right now. And that happens when we get a guest and we just get talking. Uh, It was kind of fun to go back and 
reminisce with somebody who started as an owner-operator about the time I did, a couple years ahead of me, not many. Actually, we bought our first trucks, I think, within a year or two of each other, pretty close. Uh, and Joe's had kind of a similar career, moved out from being an owner-operator to uh, work in other areas of the industry, and he's been very involved. So uh, it was kind of fun just to reminisce about uh, some of the early years in trucking back in the 80s and early 90s, and a lot of things have changed. So I'm looking forward to uh, Joe's presentation at NASTIC this year. So I'd love to see a bunch of our tribe there. It would be really cool to have a big uh, Let's Truck turnout at this event. Um, Sounds like it's going to be an awesome event, too. I'm really looking forward to it. So if you want to jump in, I'll hang out here as long as we've got calls. 855-950-3835. Well, I should qualify that. I'll hang out for the next hour. We do wrap it up at 11 Pacific time either way. But if you want to jump in, still plenty of time. 855-950-3835. Calls are starting to come in, so uh, I'll hang out here for a little bit and we'll take them. Let's get started in Indiana. Jeff, welcome to the program. Yeah, last week you had talked about, um, or the week before, about calculating your net worth and knowing your numbers and, and, and whatnot. So I've been tracking mine here for about the last 10 years or so. I've, I just turned 59. So maybe about six years ago, I became a millionaire, per se. Ah, congratulations. Yeah. And the, I was well above a million till January of 21, and then my 401k lost $175,000 of, of uh, balance. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I figured, well, my wife and I all live on forty to $50,000, and it's like, well, that's just three years I lost in six months. That's... <laughs> That's a kick in the nuts there. So yeah, it's coming back, but but it's it's coming back and 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 um, so and it's it's um, well I'm up to half a mil in the 401k. I have a four hundred thousand dollar house. We just bought. I never thought when I was twenty, starting out the goofy and and having fun partying and stuff that I would be a millionaire at 55, but uh, hard work, dedication, knowing your numbers, not living a super extravagant lifestyle certainly got to where I, I, I am. Um, we lived in a house for 30 years, sold that for two, sold that for two fifty, and then paid cash for a $400,000 house. So. Oh, nice. Nice. You it's know, nice it, to, it's just it, nice to be, when we look at that and we... we it's hear, nice to be in step seven. Absolutely. When we look at this issue and we look at people who have done this and, and they've done it as owner operators or drivers and uh, it, it it's not voodoo, it's not black magic, there's nothing mysterious about it. There There's a formula and it's really not that complicated. It's math. And... You know, a lot of people right. think that this isn't achievable for them for some reason, maybe because they how much they make or whatever. But I've seen people build incredible amounts of net worth on very little revenue. And I've seen people with tons and tons of revenue never build net worth. It's not about how much money you make. 
It's a formula for managing all of that money properly. When you have a business, you have two opportunities because in a job, all you could do is go try to find a job that pays more. But in a business, you have so many ways. You could increase your revenue, decrease your expenses. You, you know, you, you could work more if you want because it's your business. So you've got lots of options, but it's also more complicated when you're running a business. Sometimes some people get so wrapped oh, yeah. up in trying to run the business, they never pay attention to their personal finances. Most people who generate a million dollars of net worth in their lifetime are small business owners or, or independent contractors. That That's just a statistic. Um, but anybody just about can do this with the right plan. It's just math. Yeah, well, it, I, you know, I know you follow Dave Ramsey. It's 20% math and 80% mental or yeah, attitude good, or, good or how you want to approach it. Yeah, good point. Because what did I... What did I see? Forty-five percent of households could not handle a four hundred dollar emergency. Every time I see that statistic, I am sh- so shocked by that. I, you know, I, I've yeah, I, I've had times in my life where I I felt like maybe I was there, and I've I've been almost bankrupt a couple of times. But I, it didn't last long. You know, once I, I identified, no. hey, you're really screwing up here. You've made a lot of bad decisions. Um, you've learned now and you know how to go back and fix these things. You got to go fix these things. So I, I, I've been at the bottom a couple of times, but not for very long. I can't imagine the stress caused by the fact that you realize you can't handle a $400 emergency. I, I can't imagine how much stress that creates. I I know. I just, I had a seven-year-old Buick and I just wrecked it. Airbag deployed. A uh, lady pulled out in front of me. And so it's total. And I think in like, if you can't handle a $400 emergency, how would you handle if that was your only vehicle and you yeah. had to wait a month to get some money back and now to go buy another vehicle. There, there were well, people that would I, have their lights shut off. Yeah, here's what happens, though. Unfortunately, in this country, we've been so loose with credit for so long that even that person that can't handle a $400 emergency when their car breaks down, now let's say the repair's going to be $500 and they can't handle, you know, 500 Here's what they can do. They can go down to drive time and just buy another fifteen or twenty thousand dollar car, and they do. Yeah, that's the yeah. problem. We, we keep giving these people a way yeah. to extend their misery. <laughs> yeah, right. And they were probably still paying on the car they wrecked. Exactly. That's what I mean. And and this is so what they, happens. So and, now they they take that $15,000 car they just bought, they owed 7000 on the old one, and the new guy will re- roll that finance into it, and yep. now they have a $15,000 car they borrowed $22,000 on, and that one's not going to last. Yep, exactly. And and we wonder why. It's just a perpetual cycle. And, and it is bad enough in today's world that sometimes these people end up with nothing. Why do we think our homeless population is exploding the way it is? I will say that most people that are homeless have some sort of a substance abuse issue. That that is 
very well known. That's the most common reason for being homeless. But there, we have in the last couple of years, especially, we have seen people without those kind of problems and even families fall off the edge. And it's because we never taught them financial literacy. We don't teach it in school. Most people aren't getting it at home because their parents weren't financially literate. And then we have industries like payday loans and car loans that that will just keep giving these people credit and they allow them to dig such a big hole that there's no way out. Well, I, 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 just for uh, transparency, I, I'm not a truck driver. I'm just a small business owner. But you, you wanted to call in with just normal everyday yeah. people. But I run, I work, or I, I volunteer for a, a troop of, uh, in the Boy Scout here. And we have our, our fundraiser, our popcorn sale. And we just, someone donated us a square to take credit cards. So after we have a sale, I get a report that says, if you want your money now, just for easy numbers, they're sold $100 worth. For your money now, we will send you $92. If you wait 48 hours, we will send you $97. (laughs) I'm like, well, I don't need the money, so why would I take 3% less for for 48 hours? But isn't that what your factoring you've alluded to is? Oh, yeah. It's it, people don't understand the time value of money. So they think percentage is, is percentage, but but it's not. It, they say, but it's 10 percent. It doesn't matter. It's 10 percent. No, it does matter. When we say 10 percent and we're talking about finance charges, we always, always assume that's an annual rate. If it's anything other than an annual rate, you have to go calculate so you know what your annual rate is so you can compare it. And I can't seem to get people to understand that. They think, no, I borrowed $1,000 and I had to pay them back $1,200, so it was a 20% rate. No, no, that's not true. We have to look at the time. Not if you you did it in 60 days. Right. Right. It just, but trying to get people to understand that they scream at me that I don't understand math when I try to explain that. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I hear it. Yeah. Well, there was a story back in the 80s. There was a story back in the 80s where these rent-a-centers came out and there was somebody had written an article on the, you know, when VCRs first came out, there was this thing, $500. But there was an article somebody had written on the, the $5,500 VCR. Right. They would continually rent out the same VCR that cost them to buy probably 250 back then. <laughs> right. But they were paying weekly, and if they didn't pay, they got it back and rented it out again. And, it, you know, they, they brought in it's 20 times the, the price it cost them. And people don't understand that, you know, if you're paying weekly on a VCR, that, that's you're going to pay well, three times the amount. Well, well, this this happens. I, I've worked with owner operators that when I dig into their finances, because that's what I do. I work on their tax returns, their financial planning. I had guys who were in lease purchase programs or they had their own authority and they were factoring. Both of those things are outrageously expensive. They're just a different way of doing things, but they're very expensive. Instead of a lease purchase, go buy your own truck. It's a lot cheaper. Instead of factoring, use your own money or your own credit. It's a lot cheaper. Uh, 
And then on top of that, in their personal life, they were using rentals like this for furniture and things like that. And I, I added up like 15% of their disposable income was going to unnecessary costs like this. That that will wipe yeah. you out. Yeah, because that, would, you know, I just say at a $50,000 income, I mean, you know, that's 100 bucks a week. Yeah. You know what you do with $100 a week? A lot. Yeah, but when I mean, it's, that's, that's $5,000, and that, if people can't afford a $400 emergency, it, well, know, they're pissing away $400 a month. Were you listening earlier when I talked about these new um, internet banks? Uh, yes. Their whole, but go, can, go, go, go on. their whole sales pitch, every one of these commercials, their big sales pitches, you can get your direct deposit two days early. Now, they're spending a lot right. of money on this advertising, so it must work because they've been running these same ads for as long as they've been in existence. So it tells me this advertising works, but it is completely nonsensical. Somebody explain to me how there's any benefit to this. Well, the first time you said you get a two days, you get it on Wednesday instead of Friday. Well, then it's still seven days every Wednesday. Or... Plus, I have to request it early every week, or I go back from now I didn't have to wait seven days. I had to wait nine days. <laughs> right? Nice. So, so maybe just that one week, I guess. I don't know. If you, I, you know, it was the 31st and the first was coming and you needed it to pay rent or something. I, I don't know. I don't get why this is such a big sales pitch for these things. It just makes no sense to me. Well, it works. Otherwise, there wouldn't be payday loans in this kind of thing. And there wouldn't be factoring if it, people didn't use it, right? No, absolutely. And they wouldn't keep running these commercials. You know, it's, it's, but they, you see this person, oh, I'm so happy I got my payday deposit two days early. Once, once, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh. but, but just getting back to, to my car wreck where it was that just the, the peace of mind knowing everyone was okay and it's just a vehicle, I just went, okay, I'll just have, we had, a, we had an extra vehicle that we didn't use, but planning and not buying and going to Hawaii every year in my 30s and 40s and 50s, I have that money and just the, the feeling and the peace of mind and not stressing. And I mean, I'm already under stress and trying to use the stress protocol I've been doing here for three years. Oh, good. Uh, this just the finances is not one of them. Is that the, the finances don't ever enter into my my, my stress? Yeah, exactly. Because of what I've done in good. the last thirty years. Good. All right, Jeff. I gotta so. move along. Calls are piling up on me. I, I've got something I want to address before I grab another call, though. Earlier, Stephen had called me uh, the beginning of the show today, and he was talking about some of the debates we've had going on on Twitter spaces. And it, if you've been listening, it's a, it's a whole different format. And, and there have been a lot of debates and a lot of people yelling over each other. But I, I think there's some good stuff coming out of it. We're going to keep doing them. Uh, but a lot of the debate has been with the officers of this new owner-operator association, North American Owner-Operator Association, or, yeah, I think that's what it is. Um and, and the 
argument earlier today was if you are leased to a carrier, it's just like being an employee. You don't have um, a business. Now, I just saw a tweet again from one of the officers of this association, and it is about a bill. Um, Somebody's introduced a bill that would stop truck drivers from being exempt from overtime. So right now, as a truck driver, uh, you're not required to pay a truck driver overtime. There are a couple states that have fought this. Washington, I think, fought this for a while. I don't know if they have a different law in the state. I think they might. Uh, It's kind of a weird issue because we're crossing state lines all the time. But we don't pay truck drivers overtime currently, federally. Like I said, there might be some states. I'm not sure. So somebody is proposing a bill that you would have to pay drivers overtime. I have almost no opinion about that because I don't really deal a lot with employee drivers and their pay. I deal with owner operators. But I find this post from this association really ironic, given the fact that we were just arguing about, are you really an employee or do you really own a business or not? Um, Here's what they posted about this issue. It's it says and this is from one of their officers. It says, and what good is that going to do owner operators in my situation? Meaning if this passes and you have to pay truck drivers overtime, this owner operator is saying, what good is that going to do me in my situation? Do you think the brokerages are going to pay my company or me overtime? No, hell no. Why would they? You are a business. Why are you trying to piggyback on rules that are for employees? If that's the case, if you want overtime and you want all this protection from the federal government about how you get paid, then go be an employee. Instead, they're trying to tell people like me at one time, that had trucks leased to carriers that I didn't really have a business. I was just an employee. And here they're basically begging to be treated like an employee. Uh, They can't seem to make up their mind on this issue. Uh, That is completely backwards. Why would you think that because there's some law being written for employees that it should affect you as a business owner? I don't get it. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to Mississippi. Terry, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, how you doing today? One thing I wanted to say about the factoring, that I use factoring, and it has become an excellent service to my business Let because me, I don't have to qualify people. If, if and, it's done and, properly. And I don't have to chase my money. Right. Yeah, and I now, don't have to chase my money, right? right, right. I, I've tried it both ways. I, and, I, when I first started, hey, I had plenty of money. I, I had to watch. But, you know, there's it's like, you have to really work at collecting that money and keeping track of that money. It, and it's like, you know, it, 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 there's an expense there. Correct. So you have to kind so, of weigh it. You know, it's not just about, you know, the interest on the money. Well, what the reason I make it about the interest on the money is I agree with you. It is another tool, another service I could use in my business. It's like, do you really want to pay a broker and a dispatch company? Some people do. 
some people say, look, it, it, I pay them and it's just easier on me. I don't get it. But it's like, you know, do you really want to pay a mechanic or work on your own truck? Do you want to pay an accountant or do your own tax returns? I mean, you got to figure out what you sure. want to do. Sure. All I want people Absolutely. to understand yeah. about factoring is it, and I just give some generalities. If you are paying a 3% factoring fee, I just want people to understand that that cost is really similar to paying 36% on a credit card. That's all I want people to understand I get is it. how much that yeah. service is costing you. So then you can make a good decision on whether or not there's value there for you. I've never said you should never Sure, because do if this. I took that 3%, and yeah, if I just been, if I kept that 3%, I invested that in the star market over 20 years, look how much money. It would be a huge amount of money. So yeah, there's a huge, there's a big cost there. But if I have one invoice that's not paid properly, or I, or I pull a load for, for one crooked person that's in between me and who, if this stuff happens, right? Then there, well, and here's something so else. There, that, I'm just saying there's a, there's a service there, there. There is. You're right. And, and we should evaluate that service, but people can't evaluate it because they don't understand it. And the industry keeps this confusing for that reason. And then there's another one that I, I usually don't even get into because it gets too confusing. You can choose recourse or non-recourse factoring. And if you choose, sure. you can choose a type of factoring that if the original customer doesn't pay, you still get paid and the factoring company eats the loss. But that costs you even more. And I, I you try to explain that to sure. people and they just don't understand the whole issue. And they just want to fight and say, oh, well, no, it, percentage is a percentage. I only paid 3%. And I think a lot of it depends on who your customer is. Myself, I, I use the load boards and I and I pull Correct. for a lot of different people. That that so you know it works for me. Where it might not work for the guy that that has found the three brokers, you know that that are going to take care of him and he's right. not going to have to worry right. about whether or not he's getting paid. Anymore. Yeah, it, it, it's not as necessary. It's easy. Some of these these people we work for have apps and quick pay options that that they don't charge for. And so, yeah, if you if you get a couple of good brokers, you, you probably have no need to factor at all. If you are in your operation dealing with new brokers constantly, you have to invoice under a bunch of different systems. If you can have that handled and get a decent fee on it, it sometimes does make sense. It does, but hey, the real reason why I called, I am trying to determine, okay, what is the value of a dollar today as compared to 10 years ago? I hear a lot of people say, hey, I'm making, you know, a dollar a mile, I'm flying profits a dollar a mile, and 10 years ago, you didn't even hear about a dollar a mile. Well, how does that wait, compare? Wait, to wait, 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 wait. Are they trying to say 10 years ago rates were higher than a dollar a mile? No, no, they're saying that they're, they're really not saying they're saying that now I'm I'm earning I'm clearing a dollar a mile profit. Oh, in OK. My, in, on my business. Right, right. Right. And 10 years ago, you didn't even hear of that. Well, that's is, correct. Is that was, how does that compare? Is it was it like 10 years ago, 50 cents a mile? 
would have compared to a dollar a mile now, right? Mm. Just about. I mean, no, does money I, double every seven years? Is that no? Is well, that don't, still true? Don't don't confuse that doubling every seven years with anything about the economy. That's an investment concept. Two really different things. Yeah, there. I get it. So, yeah. and and one of okay. this is hard to separate. Here's why: over time. We have way too many factors to try to compare these things. Over time, we have inflation. So now if we wanted to compare this, we'd have to go through year by year during those 10 years, figure out what the inflation rate is and back that out because we don't want to compare inflationary numbers to non-inflationary numbers. So we'd have to take inflation out and, and then we're in such a volatile and I, I would say that 10 years ago uh, it was like 75 to 80 cents a mile that a small handful of people were achieving and that kind of compares to our dollar plus a mile now net so it wasn't 50 but it, it was probably about 75 yeah, yeah. or 80. okay yeah i just you know it's happened because like I mean, I look ten years ago. I could buy a brand new Freightliner for around a hundred thousand, maybe a hundred and ten thousand. Oh, come what on! What do they cost come now? On. Oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hundred eighty. There's no way ten years ago, unless you were buying a stripped day cab. I, I, those numbers don't sound right to me, and I'll tell you why. We ten years ago, we were heavy into selling gliders. And I knew the price on the gliders compared to a price of a new truck. New trucks are 130000 10 years ago. Okay. Well, maybe they were. I, I, you know, it's, it's hard to remember like years, you know, and that's, that's a good mark there. I remember going to a truck show in Louisville and the guy told me I could buy that train liner on the floor for about 96000 But so, that might have been 12 or 13 years ago. Even that yeah. is a that little... That might have been a little longer than It, it might have been longer and it might have been a really stripped out truck. I'll, I'll tell you the last truck I was able to buy for less than $100,000 new truck would have been an 01... Freightliner. So we're talking 20 years now, 20 plus years. I was able to buy a, an 01. Would my 01, no, my 01 was a Volvo. So maybe it was my 05. Might've been the 05. A day cab, single axle day cab I got for 90 some thousand. It was the last truck I ever bought under a hundred thousand. And that was 20 years ago. And it was a single axle day cab. I'm just trying to make some comparisons, you know. Yeah, what, and and like what what things will cost and well, the and, costs have gotten crazy. It, I mean, I went and got a pair of gloves the other day at TA, and they wanted twenty five dollars for one. Yeah, they were on so, sale. It's a pair of gloves. So inflation across <laughs> the board has gotten insane. When I go look at how many Absolutely. cars in the U.S. now sell for over a hundred thousand dollars, I'm shocked. You know, when I look at the price of homes around me, I'm looking at homes that are selling for three hundred and fifty and four hundred thousand dollars a square foot and they're builder grade. They're not even upscale and they're selling for those kind of prices. Everything in our, our society has gone through the roof. But if we look at truck prices today, used truck prices are about exactly the same as they were 10 years ago. 
The used truck prices have plummeted again, and new truck prices are coming down as much as possible. But the used, the 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 new truck manufacturers have to deal with all the inflation, whereas the old trucks that's already baked in. Yeah, well, when you buy a used truck, then you've got to work, you know, you got to repair it. You're going you're gonna to pay, I mean, you're, well, you know, no, you're going uh, uh, yeah, to pay the Yeah, but all, yeah, all I'm comparing yeah. is the, the cost of a truck with 600,000 miles. It, it's almost about the same as it was 10 years ago again. But you're right. The work we have to sure. put into it now is going to cost us a lot more than it did 10 years ago. Uh, well, hey, it's been great talking to you, Kevin. I got a bounce. I got a delivery I got to make here, and I got another one I'm going to try to fit in today. There but you I go. I appreciate you. I really enjoyed listening to you. You have a great day. Thanks for the call. You too. Let's go to Florida this time. Tony, welcome. Hey, Kevin. You doing all right? I am doing wonderful today. I got a good night's sleep last night. I'm feeling pretty energetic today. I uh, spent the entire weekend in the garden because there was zero wind this weekend. I mean, we had no wind whatsoever to get out on the water with, which is unusual for us. So I took advantage of it and I spent the entire weekend in the garden and it is looking incredible. I got everything done in the garden I wanted to get done and I'm fully planted for fall already. Oh, no, I can't say that. I don't plant garlic and onions till next month. But other than that, I'm fully planted. Oh, that's bittersweet because I know you wanted to get out on the water, too, as well. You were saying that. So, oh, you found something else you could do. You know, the the struggle is there's two things I really want to do in my off time right now. I want to be in the garden and I need to. Uh, One of the... uh, the bigger I make the garden, the more work there is. And I was actually getting behind. Um, so I got caught up. But the struggle is I want to be out on the water or I want to be in the garden. And I am just decided I'll let the wind dictate it. If there's enough wind, I'm going to be out on the water. If there isn't, I'll probably be in the garden. It, today's not looking good either for wind. Uh, interestingly, I just I just had a thought cross my mind. It's funny how the the wind it comes from the direction of California. I don't know. Um, uh, but we, yeah, you want to know what I do? We have a weird situation here because I live in the gorge and that's why this is such a great place for wind. Uh, the Venturi effect kicks in when air has to move through a small opening, like a gorge, it's a narrow opening. It speeds up. That's what happens. That's what a Venturi on a carburetor, that's how all of that stuff works. When you force air through a small opening, it has to go faster. But we could get the wind from either one of two directions because we're in a gorge. The wind can only blow either east or west. um, And we look for winds coming out of the west blowing towards the east. Um, once some days I'll wake up and they'll be coming out of the east and I don't even want to go out on the water then because it's just a mess. And, of course, I forgot, you're way above California, so uh, if it was hot air, maybe, you know, then that joke would continue. But speaking of carburetors, you want to know what I did? What? We found out what that chirping or choo-chooing or chugging sound was in my turbo or in my, uh, well, you said it was something coming from the exhaust. Do you remember that at all? I do. Normally, in my, this is a pack car, of course. Yeah, normally when we hear that kind of weird chirping kind of sound, it is an air leak somewhere. And many times it's like a, an exhaust manifold or 
We've had a couple engines that, that the um, ACERT can sometimes do it between the two turbos. But a lot of times when somebody describes the noise as chirping, um, we look to exhaust and leaks. Yeah, and for all my owner-operators that are dying for me to, uh, to call you out on this, uh, this having your authority and, and the, the clock watchers, and, and uh, yeah, they're all uh, wannabes, and I'm just going to say I'm watching. And, <laughs> and for those people that do want to say something, you know, take pride in having your authority. Okay. You don't need to be a dick. I could, <laughs> but it, it's just gonna, you know, just take pride in that. Kevin, as I was at the Petro in, uh, in Joplin and they did diagnose that is the turbo bearing. I, I remember thinking with all the tasks that I have, and I'm not trying to put anybody down. I just remember thinking, how is this humanly possible? That that's, that were, those were my only thoughts. No, I get it. All I, the all the work I have to do. I know. I get it, and it's why it it I it, there's lots of ways to skin a cat. There's lots of ways to own trucks and make money in this industry. I've done many of them. I've never done a lease purchase, and I've never been an employee driver. Um, but as far as you know, local, regional, um, authority, no authority, brokers, no brokers, lease to a carrier. I've, I've done a lot of those different things, and I have to say, by far. Not even close. My contract at FedEx was the best I ever had with trucks, hands down. The amount of money I made for the amount of work I had to do was really, really minimal. It, and then the ability to sell it when it was all over with. Um, that was just, an, was just a great business to own. It was a, a tough decision to sell it. I mostly sold it because I was bored with it and I wanted the cash to invest into this business and it worked out good. So, but uh, it, it's hard to compare how much money I was able to make in that contract for very little work. And that's the case with a lot of fleet owners over there. Let's, uh, let's go to Arkansas. Cody, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Uh, the chime card you're talking about, yeah. The two days faster is referring to people that are getting a paper check from their company. When they get that chime card, they're able to have it direct deposited. And the uh, direct deposited is two days before the paper check. Right. But and they, most but, but, of those folks uh, I know, but can't hold, get. Hold on a then, second. Yeah, you're right. Because on, so on the paper check, they either got a paper check every seven or every 14 days, right? So to get it two days sooner it. only works on one Wednesdays. time. Right. It only works one time. Yeah. So I, it, and it's, yeah, you're right. it's okay that you can do direct deposit and it's all easy and all that. But this is like their biggest selling point. You watch their commercials and they make a big deal out of this. And I don't understand why people don't understand. This is not a big deal. You get an advantage one time. Well, well, they also, the people that I know that have those cards can't get a actual bank account because they screwed the banks over and owe typical <laughs> banks money. So well, they really go to then. the Chime card. Yeah, it's just another one of those things where you said it earlier, and it was brilliant, I thought, just extending somebody's misery. 
that's all they're doing with all these ways of giving somebody money early. There were these apps that I was seeing advertised a year or two ago. Maybe it was a little longer than that. I don't see many ads for these anymore. But there were these apps, like one of them had some goofy name like Bob or something. And you could borrow, I, I don't know, you could borrow money against your paycheck. It was basically a payday yep. loan in an app is what it was. And I, I the fees were, they make it sound like, oh, well, you can do this free. And I, they all disappeared. So I, I haven't seen an ad for those things in a couple of years. I don't know what happened to all those either. Not enough people going into it, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah I know they, what you're talking about. I've seen them. Yeah, all, yeah, of, all of these things, payday loans, they're, they're, they're really just ways. Here's what we have to remember. Whether you're using a credit card to buy stuff and not paying off the balance every month. If you use credit cards and you pay your balance off every month and use it to get the points, that's, that's good. You're creating an advantage. Most people use credit cards believing that it has improved their standard of living. Oh, whoa, but if I didn't have this credit card, I wouldn't have been able to take that vacation or I wouldn't have been able to buy this furniture or they use credit believing that it improves their standard of living and nothing could be further from the truth. Every time you borrow money, you have to pay for it. The money you're paying to borrow money could have been used to improve your lifestyle, really improve it. You didn't improve anything. You ended up spending more money this way. You've lowered your standard of living by using credit. Because you have but less money to spend. I know. I mean, the I know. only way... The only way that you know it is go through it and tired of living in that struggle of it and then do the research and, as you say, the hard work to understand what is going on to get out of that side. Yeah, and and we can write all kinds of laws about interest rates, and um, none of those interest rate laws matter when it comes to things like payday loans and factoring and because they're exempt from a no, lot of those because they're laws. predatory right. and they go out, yeah. I'm a, you know, user of all that stuff, not the chime loans and everything, but, you know, the predatory loans, I've learned the hard way. Yeah. Being 32, you know, unfortunately, not knowing the ways of the world. Yeah. Unfortunately, I know people in their 60s that still do this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I run. I, I meet people like that, too. And it just boggles my mind at how. You know, people like the owner operators and everything that you all that you talk about all the time that don't know their numbers, that don't, you know, and I see them all the time on Facebook griping about rates and everything. And I'm just like, how do y'all get to the point to where you can buy a truck and run it and not even understand all these things? And I understand it and I can't even do it. Uh, exactly. I know. Um, and, and again, none of this stuff is overly complicated if you are taught this early. You know, there can be a lot to it. There can be yeah. a lot of different issues, but nothing is overly complicated. If we were just taught good financial practices at home, that would be wonderful. But so many people don't know it themselves. So how do they pass it down to their kids? And we certainly don't teach anything like this in school. Yep. 
and I don't know why we don't. I, I mean, don't this either. This is more important than algebra, trigonometry. Absolutely. I don't read and I don't write but, very well, but you know they spend a lot of time in school on that, and money is your whole entire life. That, you know, you can't do anything without you, money. You know what else is weird? How, how many of those things we were taught how to do are now done by something other than our brain? Like, I, I think you should know math. I think it's really important to know math. Math is really powerful. But there are a lot of people that have a hard time subtracting and it doesn't really affect them. We have calculators. You can do figure out these answers yeah. all day long. Now we have computers that can write for us and AI is coming along. And uh, you're not going to have to use your brain much. Over Overall, every decade, we, we use our brain less and less. Uh, but that's not a good thing. It, to me, all it does is create no. more opportunities for people to take advantage of you. That it does. That it does. I mean, I, I'm one to speak. i talked to you multiple times i was in the lease purchase got out of it went to company driver now at the union job transporting the trucks i don't know if you yeah. remember me specifically but i've called yeah, you I a do. whole bunch the, the difference also, i see here listening, is you've been learning over time none of us were born with this information yes. we weren't taught it in our schools if we weren't taught it by our parents and i wasn't my parents did not manage money well at all ever so they certainly couldn't teach me how to manage it well. School didn't teach me how. I, like most things, I, I'm self-taught. Yep. Yep. I mean, I pay attention, and I, yeah, I've learned a lot from you, and I really do enjoy listening to you, and I really appreciate it. I mean, I'm kind of well, lost when you're not on. So. Well, I, I appreciate that, and it also sounds like, though, you learn from your own experiences, which is... That's really what I think the biggest mistake we have made in our school system is that we don't teach people how to learn. That's what's missing. We teach all we do anymore in our school system, our government indoctrination centers, is teach people how to memorize information to pass a standardized test. We base almost everything now in school on these standardized tests, and we waste all kinds of time teaching people, not teaching them, I'm sorry, getting people to memorize things. And unfortunately, you will forget all of that stuff because you didn't learn it, you memorized it. There's a big, big difference. Once we learn how to learn then we can start learning from our own experiences. But you wonder why some people seem to keep making the same mistakes over and over because we don't teach people how to learn anymore. We don't teach people problem-solving skills. We don't teach people troubleshooting skills. If you don't figure out how to develop these skills on your own, you're probably never going to come in contact with them. And it's unfortunate. And it seems to be getting worse every decade. All right, I'm looking at the clock, and we are, uh, we're out of time for today. We're going to wrap this up. Uh, I have no idea what is going on um, my schedule this week. Let me think. I haven't looked. Kind of took the whole weekend and just played out in the garden. I wasn't playing. I actually got a lot of work done. Uh, I'm feeling it, too. I'm a little sore today. Uh, I have no idea what my schedule is. I should probably go check that and uh, 
see what's going on this week. We will see you back here tomorrow for the power hour. I do know that. So we'll see you then. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.